Hello and welcome back to another episode of the MotoGP Extra podcast. The last round of the 2023 season. It's gone by in a flash, just like last year. I can't believe we're actually already at the end of our second season of doing this podcast. It is quite surprising. Probably not going to be the last one of the year, though. Probably will end up doing some in the preseason, though. But I'm Reese, and joining me as always to discuss the events of this final round of the 2023 season is my co-host Dill. Now, of course, two championships already sealed. There was still one to go and of course we will talk about that one quite a bit when we get into the MotoGP class. But even still with Moto2 and Moto3, there was play to play for in terms of other championship positions and just overall race positions. So we'll get straight into the Moto3 class. Now, Colin Veyer, another pole position for him, but Sunday didn't quite start off in the best way, did it, Dill? No, unfortunately for him, he had a sighting lap crash on the way to the grid. Uh, horrible corner entry, cold tyre, high side landed on his head. Uh, probably scuffed up his helmet. Um, in fairness, got it back to the uh, start line, got it back and got everything sorted and did make the start and had a, an overall good race considering. But it was um, it was literally what it was the start of what are things to come for the whole day on Sunday in, in Valencia. It was just uh, a day of crashes, cold tyres, just... It was Sunday was a bit miserable in many ways just because of us going to Valencia at such a late part of the year. Like today is the twenty sixth of November. We usually, I think, usually the eleventh to ninth to tenth is usually like when we finish. So we're a good, uh, kind of roughly two weeks out from where we're normally at. So uh, even then, we're pushing the limits whether we should be even riding in Valencia with the temperatures. But um, today really showed that and that was a, a nasty little crash for Colin. Thankfully, he got he bounced back and was okay. Uh, I think the fact he was starting for Paul, it was probably the extra motivation he had to get back. He had to make sure he made the grid, but it, was, uh, it wasn't great to start off our days racing with that. No, it wasn't at all. And like you say, of course, 26th of November, this is the latest finish we've ever had in the World Championships since it started. Even 2020, which of course had a later finish because it started later, uh, was, was still earlier than this. I think it was a week or two before. So this has been the latest finish, the coldest probably it's ever going to be when we go to Valencia. Hopefully... Actually, I mean, I suppose we have the calendar already, but I hope it's not this late next year, but I have a feeling that probably will be um, because they're trying to ram even more rounds in next year and you have to have some space between them. So I'd imagine this could be an issue again next year. Now, I do actually want to pass another point to you about this. Sighting lap crashes, not something we see that often at all, but this season seems to be happening quite a lot. We've had quite a few happen in Moto3, had a couple of Moto2. To be fair, I don't think we've really had them in MotoGP so much, but... Do you think there's a specific reason why this is happening? Because it does seem rather strange. Obviously, we had uh, Jake Dixon crashing on a sighting lap back in Austin. I think Josh Watley did as well. We had a few go down at Phillip Island, although at least, to be fair, that was wet, so it was a bit different. And obviously, Vare down here again seems quite strange since it's not something that we generally see throughout the years. It's it's strange that we, like, over the years, you see the odd one. Um, ben Spee's Indianapolis is one that comes to mind. He crashed on a sighting lap you had Casey who crashed on a warm lap back in Valencia in 2010 Rossi crashed on a on, on a lap to the grid in Mugello in like 2001 I'm going to say in the rain it happens but this year we've like there's nearly like five of them that's happened and we've had warm up lap crashes we've had sighting lap crashes um it's I don't think there's one point because the fact it's happened in Moto 2 and Moto 3 um the only I suppose kind of um middle ground there is the Dunlop rubber so maybe like historically Dunlops have been tyres that could probably do double race distance on one set of tyres they don't really wear out 
example is um Sam Lowe's in Qatar, fastest lap of the race on his final lap of the race. That kind of just shows that um it, the limiting factor to going quick was more the fuel load in that race and not the uh, tire temps, not tire wear. So it shows maybe that because they're so durable tires that if you're not on on the um on the ball on the outlap, you're not really generating heat. Or maybe if you if you're trying to generate heat too quickly, you can have these moments and these crashes. Um, that's kind of the only thing I can think of is maybe is that these Dunlop tires are just they're just so good at doing what they do and not wearing and be, be basically being relatively consistent that they can be a bit tricky to get them operated and switch them on so I'd say that's probably the only thing but uh, definitely this year has been like we've seen a Moto2 champion crash in Phillip Island and, and no that was a wet one but um and cold temperatures so that's a bit more normal because we've had them over the years uh, like for example the Rossi one in Magella that was a proper cold wet day like so you can have them mistakes but um, like Dixon crashing in 25 degree heat in Texas uh, Josh Watley crashing in Texas on the outlap we've had um, many different scenarios so it's not like it's extreme heat extreme cold it, it's probably maybe the Dunlop rubber and of course we have our final weekend of Dunlops in MotoGP and overall so maybe we won't see it next year it'll be something to go for definitely Yep, so, uh, you know, Dill, if anything happens next year, if there's any satellite crashes, Dill was wrong. He says it's all down to the Dunlop tyres with those Pirellis uh, next year. But yeah, that's what I'm thinking as well, because uh, the Michelins are known for being, well, they're known for a lot of things, but they're known for being pretty good, like, especially in the wet, the wet tyres are quite good. But I think they're pretty grippy, but they're very grippy tyres. So I think straight out of the box, they're probably not too bad. MotoGP bikes, one with the carbon brakes, you probably have to brake harder in the pit lane to heat up your brakes anyway, so you're probably heating up the tyres a little bit, so it could be just little things like that. Obviously as well, something we didn't mention was Moto3 Moto2 riders obviously less experienced, and younger riders could have probably more likely to make mistakes, so that could be why. But it does seem strange that there has been a pattern, and again, before the race even started, there was a bit of drama. But actually onto the race itself now. A strange one, I think it's safe to say. Not quite the kind of race you'd expect to see in Moto3 because people were struggling to pass. Uh, we had, obviously, a bit of a breakaway group, which is not too unusual. We do see that quite often now, but just a few riders pulling away at the front. Not that much overtaking, to be honest. They were pretty line of stern, weren't they, for the start of the race still? We were pretty tidy. I think we first we started out with nine, then it went to seven, and then it went to five, and that was kind of the five that was going for the, the podium and the win, and... It was tidy for the most part until I believe Dennis not Dennis Anchu was overtaken quite aggressively by uh, Alonso into the final corner, pushed him right off the track. And then I was thinking, oh no, this is going to spark World War Three here because it's a difficult track to overtake. The two of them are very hot-headed. The only thing was Dennis Anchu had a big crash on Friday afternoon, so he was feeling a bit um, worse for wear. So he kind of faded through the race, so I don't think he had the just the overall maybe the speed to kind of get back and wrestle as much as you normally would but um it was one of those races you were kind of expecting kind of nice calm keeping it calm keeping it calm and then you're expecting someone to just throw a spanner into it and throw everything up into the air and it, it never really came it, it got a bit more aggressive and there was mistakes from via and stuff towards the end and again can't really blame him after the, such a horrible crash and a siding lap so um but it was just one of those races where even in Moto3, you were like, Jesus, it's not going to be easy to make a pass here. You kind of had maybe three or four uh, breaking zones that you could kind of get a move done, but nothing was as simple as like Qatar, where like the overtakes were a lot more straightforward and you can kind of pick out easily four places where 
on a Moto 3 bike, you get to slipstream and you can just level them and that's moved on. Whereas it felt like in Moto 3 and in all classes, um, it would, they were, you're going over your limit and you're making a pass is, is, a, is a risk. And um, we saw a crash early on from Artigas. Well, Artigas didn't crash, but he took out, um, I think, two other riders. It was Vicente Perez and Diego Moreira. Now, he got a double long lap penalty. Now, the one issue I have with that is you don't see him at the start of the shot, so you don't know if he has a moment with someone else in the brakes. You just see like an inner corner shot where he just comes in and collects riders. So I felt maybe they they I'd imagine race direction and distributors had more cameras than the public, so the the penalty was probably correct. But back to the, the battle at the front, it was very very much just waiting for other people's mistakes, and that's kind of how the race was won because that's how Ver lost the lead. And in the end, it was it was a difficult race to kind of predict and very difficult to overtake, which is not a a usual. Um, part of the motor tree class yeah it's actually interesting that you mentioned that crash that was that happened on the first lap something i kind of just glossed over there i, I kind of forgot to mention it um yeah obviously altigas uh skiffling out Marrera and um vincente perez and i think holgado got hung out to dry by them as well yeah so i think he, he put did. him right to the back so he actually had a quite a good race a little shout out to him he managed to carve back through after what's been a solid season for him but definitely sort of dropped off um dropped off towards the end well for the second half of the season was quite bad but Saying it's the second season in the class, I'm sure he wouldn't be too disappointed. He could try and bounce back for the next one. But we had that crash. Um, obviously, he said we don't know if he had a moment coming in. Like you said, the stewards probably have more cameras. But they probably don't care because generally they still penalise you anyway for that. We've seen um, crashes in the past where people have got like neutrals on the way into the corners. Um, Lowe's and Chantra. And Chantra and Lowe's, the two different incidents mm-hmm. there. Um, mm-hmm. I think they both got penalties uh, for those incidents. So... I think, to be honest, most of the time, if you skiffle out riders, they usually just um, give you a penalty, regardless of whether you'd already lost control of the bike, because I guess, ultimately, it's still a mistake. Although, I, I see what you mean, it probably is a bit harsh, but we don't know. He, he probably didn't have a moment, he probably did just just get it wrong, get yeah, it too hot. But, yeah, we obviously don't know exactly what happened. It's not like Artigas has uh, you know, not done things like that a little bit before. You know, he's, he's sometimes he's a bit aggressive with things, so... Yeah, but you know, it's not completely out of character. Actually, once took out Artigas, obviously, the news this weekend was that uh, Proustal GP are dropping out of the paddock, which came as a bit of a surprise to me. I'm not sure about you, but um, it sounds like CF Moto sponsorship has pulled the plug and disappeared. So it'd be a bit of a shame to see that team go because over the years they've they've been a plucky little team. And obviously, Bezeki probably is their most sort of famous rider fight flight championship with Martin back in 2018. But never nice to see a team drop out of the paddock in that fashion. But since we're talking about Artigas, I thought we'd just uh, give it a little mention. But yeah, we had that crash at the start of the race. But after that, like you say, basically until um, obviously Onshu and Alonso started going at it, it was pretty clean. But even after that, still pretty clean. And I think it kind of shows uh, that there was no overtakes particularly that Suzaki sort of led on to the last lap and was able to win his first race of the season, which... Um, is is a surprise to me actually. I hadn't even realised he hadn't won one until I think like the last round. I think like you might mention it, and I didn't even realise that he hadn't won one. I just assumed he had. But he's been mugged so many times in the last laps. I think would you say that obviously he rode a very good last lap, but would you say definitely the fact that it's hard to pass here played into that? Because other tracks we've seen him be mugged where it's been easier to make the positions. Yeah, seventy five percent track, twenty five percent Suzaki is what I kinda of go with. Um he does cover the line a bit into the final corner. Um, and he's very good at corner 
corner speed so he doesn't like very 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 much like Fanati where he doesn't ridiculously break late and square everything off and he runs the bike into the corner probably fast and carries his speed through so for the, for the most part usually he's easier to overtake but at a track where like if you look at the, the midfield or the in, in section of Valencia it's constantly turning back so you're kind of always running the bike in trying to keep the corner speed and get it keep turning you're never really making bees out especially in these Moto3 bikes which wouldn't be the most kind of stop and go bikes in, in, in the paddock so it probably was in a way like all his stars aligned from because it was one of those tracks where if you can get to the front it's not going to be easy to re-overtake it does probably like Lorenzo's always very good around here it is a bit of a stop go track but it still has a lot of slow flowing corners so uh, it did suit him a bit better and again he did do exactly what he needed to do he just covered enough into the last corner and um Alonso in second didn't really have anything he could do to get them to the line, but it was uh, it was it was more than more than deserved because he should have done it a long time ago. But just one of those things. His first win it was it was going to come. It was just a matter of when. And to be honest, we'll probably come to here in a second about um, Messia. But imagine the championship didn't end last week. It would have been a big kind of part of the championship that he came here. And like we we expect him every week to be quick. Whereas Messia has the odd weekend where maybe it's equipment, maybe it's him. It just struggles to work. It was the same when Foggia was on the, the Honda where the odd weekend he'd be 12th and that would be the limit. He couldn't get any higher. And uh, I think Messia overall has been just slightly better than that in terms of his bad weekends as a P6, P7 where years gone by, the Leopard team, when they've had a, a bad weekend, they can be on fringe points for the for the week. So um, it was it was just good to see Sasaki go out on a, on a flourish with a nice result, go up to one or two and a, maybe maybe internally cure some demons getting that win because it was a, a tough week I'd imagine coming from here after Qatar yeah it's nice to see him get his uh, last win obviously he goes up to Moto2 next year so one final win in the Moto3 class actually got to win this season which is nice obviously sealed that runners up spot because he actually could technically have still lost it if he'd uh, if he crashed and David Alonso would finished first or second I think uh, it was possible for David to actually overthrow him but you make some mention of Masia I was going to yeah just come on to that point now that obviously the championship Last time, bit of a cloud over it with the way it was, uh, well, the way it was won, basically, with the, the tactics for Leopard. We obviously were pretty, you know, upset about it, saying that we didn't think it was very fair. We were pretty disgusted with some of the, the antics. Seems like as a general opinion, uh, social media, pundits, everybody kind of seems to think the same thing. And a lot of people now saying that it looks even more different now because the gap was six points. The gap was now six points after this race between the two riders, which is such a small margin Obviously, Messiah, I think, finished P13, had a pretty poor race, to be honest. He was sort of just off the back of the lead group initially, but just went backwards uh, throughout the pack. Um, top Honda was 11th in this race, so I think that kind of shows you that it clearly was uh, not a Honda circuit. Uh, but he wasn't even top Honda, it was actually for a Sato that finished in 11th. But if we still had the championship alive, Suzaki picks up six more points in Qatar, he, he wins the championship um, today, well... He probably doesn't. He needs seven, probably. If he seven. picks up seven yeah. more points in, in Qatar, he wins the championship because obviously he and he had the, the, the one win that he's just picked up here. So people are now saying it does change the complexion of those moves because we were sort of saying last week that Messiah was probably going to win it anyway, so it just seemed a bit needless. But if Messiah was 13th and, you know, Suzaki wins today and last week Suzaki was like P3, Suzaki is the world champion. So... I think uh, probably worth mentioning there that I don't know what you think, but it does seem like those tactics now have had a bigger impact than we first thought. 
I still don't think it's okay what he did. And there's been lots of interviews. Be um, TNT Sports interviewed him. I'd imagine that um, probably Marsa or Dazan probably have interviewed him in Spanish. Uh, he basically came out defending him, saying like that. Or like the issue is for me, right? Is he's clearly me against the world mentality has kind of come back to bite him in a way because the, what he said this week gone by there about the, the Qatar weekend was that it was me versus all the KTMs all year Sasaki had help up until Qatar, Qatar there was three KTM manufacturer bikes there was the Husqvarna of Sasaki there was the KTM of Dennis Anchu still technically in it and Holgado was, or sorry was it Alonso was Anchu already out I think Anchu may have already been out I think Alonso so it's three sorry, different was... KTM manufacturer bikes basically as well exactly so it's to say he's had help all year from the other KTMs up until the round that you see in the championship there's been other bikes in it that have been trying to win the championship still so I that's just him thinking that like everyone's out to get him. That's kind of a bit of um shows a bit of his mentality, I suppose. Maybe um still maybe not as bulletproof as we probably have taught this year. If he's thinking that like oh they're all out to get me, even though they're still battling amongst each other trying to win this championship. So um you could kind of see his mentality of why it ended up doing what he did, but again, still don't um by any means sympathize with his with his moves and stuff like that. He said he was he was basically targeting Sasaki that he wanted to take points off him in in, in a way and. and bring him further back down the grid and in a way hopefully he could make a bigger gap and go to Valencia not needing as many points but the fact he scored only a handful of points today Sasaki uh, gets to win now would it be a different story if we went and the championship was still on with Sasaki of one would Messiah finish so low um, maybe it's hard to, it's again it's 2020 vision for hindsight like so it's never going to be perfect but it just always puts the question in your back of mind thinking well, like if if Adrian Fernandez, Leopard, and Messia weren't up to their dirty games, of which pretty much everyone has come out in favor of Sasaki, and no one has come out in a way, it's kind of they've, a lot of people on social media have done the right thing instead of coming out slating Messia. Just been the odd one, McDoom being one. Most people are coming out commending and congratulating um, Sasaki and saying how brilliant his year has been. They hold your head to, um, up, you're the real champion. Blah blah. There's been plenty of that. So. I think a lot of people are praising Sasaki for his, I suppose, again, he didn't act rash. He could have done a lot of things in Qatar. He could have easily punted off uh, Adrian Fernandez when he was um, up to his games. Also, there's another thing for Adrian Fernandez. We didn't see this on TV, but he did roll the throttle on straight and make um, um, Sasaki break, basically break checked him, which is like, in my eyes, that's not a million miles off of what Sasaki, uh, what Fanati did in Mizano in... Yeah, that's terrible. I didn't know he. I didn't even hear. I hadn't heard that till you said that. So. I heard this from yeah. Sylvan that. Um, that's even. Worse. He was talking to Sasaki in the airport, I think, before we went here. That um, Adrian Fernandez basically just brake checked him on a straight. Um, so that's that's a race ban for me. Like, if we yeah. go back to what Anchu got a penalty for in Texas for the kind of moving when he had the big collision with Pedro Acosta, and I don't remember who else was there. I think um, I'm not sure who else was involved in that incident, but that was a race ban for Anjou, and I think we all felt that he got scapegoated that day, whereas yeah. Because that no was still means... a mistake, ultimately. He was just trying to get the situation with another rider and accidentally caused an accident. If you're yeah, deliberately exactly. chopping the throttle on straight, that's, that's, that's... that's not a race ban, that's out. Like, that, that's gone. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're banned. You're, you're banned for at least a season. Like, you know. Yeah, but I, I think because maybe... I'm, I'm Again, I heard nothing other, other than Sasaki saying it, so I'm not really sure... What will ever come of it would probably... I think the, the Fanati thing was so bad because we caught clear on day on camera we saw it live as it happened and we knew straight away there was going to be 
a massive inquest into it whereas because it came out after the race that Adrian Fernandez did such a thing and uh, another bit of backstory that I didn't really think of for the last podcast is the whole reason why Adrian Fernandez was so anti-KTM group is because of his treatment of his brother um, his brother Raul Fernandez was forced to go up into the class when he wanted to leave KTM group and go to Yamaha um, and then throughout the year had many fallings out with the team was forced to ride with concussion apparently um, neither of the Fernandez brothers would I kind of take any anything without a grain of salt really so it's just a messy situation and i feel like that sasaki was the unlucky party in this one that adrian fernandez was trying to get a personal family vendetta out on the uh, ktms and the husqvarna's and that sort of group so he also has an issue with that team specifically if you remember that he rode for that team previously when it was max racing Um, that too yeah so. so yeah there is it's just a personal thing in there for him. Yeah, it's just messy and it's very, very sad that it's been Sasaki who's paid for it in a way because he's had a brilliant season. Um, last season in the championship, you want to kind of go with a bang and he definitely had a chance of winning the title and this has just proved this week, just today in this race, that he was so quick and on his day, he was, I'd say, probably outright fastest man in the category because of the way he rolled on the bike. So um, just kind of finish up, it's just, it will again even put more of a kind of shine off the the Messiah title because of the fact that he had to do that to still win it whereas a lot of people felt after Qatar was like you didn't need to do it but now it looks like he did have to do it to win it so again it doesn't it doesn't really justify doing it but um you don't win a title like that like so it's uh again just the 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 mess from last week has carried on unfortunately yeah, it's one of those things as well in like years' time. People won't remember that that happened at the penultimate round of the season and that it technically like made it so he just won the championship early. People will probably remember that's how he won it. So Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, uh, it, yeah, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna go away anytime soon, this I don't think. Um it is a shame because I think if you know, if Messia then won this last race I, I actually it kind of regardless what happened in this one, right? If Messia had won this last race, whatever you'd be like, okay, well, you know, I still don't really understand why he did that then because it was pointless. But now it's kind of like, well, did he know he's just going to be really weak at this circuit or something? Or, you know, was it just because the championship's over, he just switched off and wasn't bothered? There, there could be that element to it as well. Um, but yeah, it just, it's a shame that we're still having to talk about this as well. The fact that like, because it happened, you know, it's it's such a big talking point with this Moto3 season because it's been a good season. And to be honest, I really like want to commend like how well of a job Messiah has done this season because like, let's face it, like he's not on the best equipment. Um, I mean, the Leopard bikes, you know, it's not a bad market team, don't get me wrong. But you can see like a weekend like this, for example, the bike wasn't any better than, it wasn't a top 10 bike today. That None of the Hondas were a top 10 bike. So yeah, it kind of shows that like over the course of the season, he's done a fantastic job. He's capitalized on the Honda circuits and you know the new circuits and perhaps some weird conditions but then he kind of spoilt it by behaving the way he did although i suppose he wasn't the worst of the two and also him doing it makes more sense than you know his teammate doing it but yeah it's just uh just just a shame and i think probably something that we hopefully can forget but yeah it's just just kind of tarnished the championship a little bit but a championship that was won in a decent fashion and not uh, tarnished was the Moto2 championship obviously won quite a while ago so we'll move on to that race now so the race didn't start in the best way obviously we had a little crash uh, in Moto3 on the opening lap we had two pretty horrible crashes in Moto2 on the opening lap um, turn four we had Garcia going down and getting collected by uh, Guevara, Guevara uh, hitting uh, Garcia's body at the last corner we had, uh, we didn't quite really see the crash at the last corner because it was sort of in the top of the shot. 
Um, the Zany went down and got hit by Alex Scrooge, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I think yeah, I two. believe so, yeah. Yeah, we're involved in that one. Two pretty horrible accidents, but fortunately we were able to get away with them because uh, everyone seems to be relatively okay. But I don't know about you, Dill, but um, my first thoughts were pretty bad. Like it was, it, it looked like a pretty horrible accident the first time. Yeah, the Sergio Garcia one was horrific. I, to be fair, the, the first time you see both of them, you kind of you kind of wince and think, "Oh, geez, yeah. what have I just seen?" Like you, you kind of tense up. It's one of those ones where a rider falling in a pack and getting hit at all, whether it be head on or glanced or whatever, it's never it's never going to be nice. So, um, seeing Garcia kind like I've watched it back a few times, it doesn't look as bad the more I watch it because it kind of he slides and kind of gets a glancing blow where the first time it looks like he just gets completely run straight over. Um, so it, it makes more sense than when you see him kind of sitting up. Now he did go to the medal center and I have yet to see anything on his condition, but I did see him get up and walk away in the gravel. Um, at the time we all thought it was going to be a red flag just because we thought that it would be, um, that he'd need a stretcher, serious medical attention inside of track. So we all thought straight away it was going to be a red flag, but, um, obviously, through the, the marshals and the designee and stuff like that, they, they figured out pretty quickly that he was okay to be moved under his own steam and went straight to the medical centre and again, we kind of wish him well, but at the, at the moment there was no um, news at the time of recording on his condition, but the fact he was up and about kind of shows that at worst, maybe the, there's a bone broken, which is not nice and obviously it's terrible with injury season, but he, the fact he was conscious and moving under his own steam, like I said, was, was good. But the uh, second crash... We kind of get in a weird long lens from turn one, start of the grid, back to the last corner. Um, looks like Nozane's already crashed and Alex Scrape comes through and he kind of just glances off him. Again, this could have been a lot worse because it looks like whatever way uh, Nozane is after crashing, the way he's rolling, he kind of rolls and kind of glances off the side of the Moto2 bike. So again, that one at first glance looks like he gets a lot harder of a hit. But again, he kind of just glances now again. I say it as if it's he gets a glance off a door. He, he still gets a, a nice whack, like, but and um, that could have been extremely bad that crash because he's already crashed in front of him and coming out of um Adrian Campbell's corner in Valencia would be fourth gear, 100, 100, 110 miles an hour. You're getting clipped there, like, so it's not going to be a not going to be a nice feeling. But he also was up a bit of a limp, but that might have been from I'd imagine judging where he ended up, he probably high sided, so I'd imagine. Could have been from that, and I'm kind of hoping that maybe a bit like Pecco, um, his injury is more from his own crash rather than the contact. But um, yeah, it was, it was just a messy opening lap. Thankfully, it calmed down after that. But um, yeah, just a, a real show of what can happen, how bad it can go, how quickly it can go bad in our sport. But thankfully, it does look like that both men are okay, and um, we got away lucky, definitely. Yeah, they they both jumped to their feet pretty quickly, so that's it's always a good sign. I haven't heard anything else, just like you, but. Generally, that's uh, if, they're, if they're up on their feet and you don't really hear anything, it's probably because there's not really much to hear. So that's uh, good. Hopefully, they should be all okay. Because of course, Moto three and Moto two guys have got their tests for uh, tomorrow. Although I suppose for Nazani that won't make a difference because he's not going to be on the grid. But um, of course, Mr. Garcia is going to be there, so he'll be hoping that he can be okay to test tomorrow. Now, something we did mention in the Moto three race was just how difficult it was to pass. That was amplified once again in Moto two with dive bombs seeing to be the only way you can actually make a pass. Alonso Lopez was a good example of that. In turn four, he pulled off some pretty aggressive passes, really sort of pushing people out of the way in something that he's become quite well known for. 
Uh, he wasn't the only one, but his seemed to be the, the harshest passes. And just highlights again, Valencia, not the best trap for racing, is it? Just because there were kind of trains of riders for a little while broken up by the old dive bomb. But there wasn't really... It was pretty much turn four where all the passes were coming. It was the only place you could really pull a pass and you were sitting the other rider up regardless. Every single lap. And if you were Lopez, you were really sitting up the other rider. It shows in all three classes how the technical rules have done a good job of bringing pretty much everyone really close together because um, years gone by, there has been races that there's been more overtakes and more overtakes for the lead and stuff like that. But Moto2 being, as I call it most weeks, a spec class in, in a way, it's very hard to make the difference without... Like, you can do what a lot, um, what the, the odd rider is doing, which is kind of leaving the brake off, but... Unless you're making contact, you're more than likely going to go right and you'd lose the move you made from four to five and that little start kind of squirt there, you'd lose your your um, overtake. So that would kind of negate the overtake. What some of them were doing was kind of block passing, kind of sitting riders up and running them wide. It's just a messy corner. Uh, it's a messy track. It's not an amazing track. There's very few riders who like it. Um, it's a horrible place to go when you need to win a championship. Um you would much rather a racetrack that is, you'd rather a Silverstone kind of racetrack where it's wide open. There's a lot of places where you can do things. It's more of a, a good racetrack, whereas Valencia is tight, twisty. It all folds in on itself. Now, from a spectator, it's more like a stadium because apparently it has the world's longest grandstand, which can hold up to like 100,000 people. I think it goes around the whole like one side of the track. So that's a pretty cool feature to it. And it because it's in a bit of a dome, if you sit pretty much anywhere you can kind of see the whole track which in a way i suppose as a viewer probably brilliant but um in terms of viewing in the tv aspect of it it's not a great racetrack it's the struggle to make overtakes we go there at a really bad time of year for temperatures because uh gp bikes have the asymmetric tires motor two and motor three don't so it makes it very uh risky into like to turn four turn eight as well as another big crash zone and i suppose you could say turn 11 as well was you kind of trail break around it goes on the change of direction there so it's just one of those tracks where you it kind of makes you wince like i was watching the, like the gp race is a perfect example we'll get to that later but it was just um it's just not a great track and i think for a while i've defended because it was kind of like um the kind of nostalgic way of we've been here for so many years we finished so many championships here it's 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 the 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 night the, the day after we get to test you see Valentino on the Ducati you saw Lorenzo going on the Honda and the Ducati you saw Maverick on the Yamaha all these years of seeing these new kind of um, combinations at that track and it felt like a nice thing but I think that's probably going to be taken off the edge of it now because I think we really need to probably probably look at going somewhere else it's definitely the weakest track in Spain um I'd much rather an Aragon being thrown back on or um something else but if for all of them next year so. Aragon and Valencia, so I, I just think Valencia is it's outstayed. It's yeah, yeah I, I just think it's out outlast. It's it's gotten to the point where even Moto Two bikes look a bit wonky around and around, and like the GB bikes just don't work there. They're just too they're too much on the limit, and they're just too too big for the class. So it's a it's a bit of a shame really that the track has kind of been dwarfed. Now, of course, GB bikes are kind of doing that. A lot of tracks like just talks of Haretmin, Baby Unsafe. We saw. Uh, when Marcus came back last year after his injury, maybe the year before, crashing and reaching a wall into the corner after Pedroza. So it's it, it, a lot of tracks with the air and stuff like that. And as well, 
with the Moto 2 class gone to the 765, they are reaching higher speeds and they're getting probably more out of the bikes than they ever have. Um, so every track is kind of getting a bit a bit more tight. And I think Valencia's days are numbered, in my opinion. I'd be very quick to get rid of it. And I've been someone who's tried to defend it for a long period of time, saying that it's a kind of a classic end to a season. But after today, and um, to add to the question you threw to me a while ago at the start of the podcast, we're going to Valencia from the 15th to the 17th of November next year. So we'll be a week later then. And we usually go there and we're about 10 days earlier than we are this year. So it'll be slightly later than normal, but still not as late as now. But um, it'll be just as cold, I'd imagine. So it's it's going to be probably more this next year. So um, probably going to be having the same podcast in a year's time. Yeah, because it's upload the same episode. We saw it. <laughs> that father recalling a new one, but... Yeah, it's uh, it's Mickey Mouse, isn't it? As uh, as we like to say, it's nice. The, the track it's, it's very much like a go karty track. Is what they, they kind of say. Yeah. It's very tight, difficult to pass. And if you look at it from a like a heli shot, it does look like a bit of a go kart track. I mean, the start yeah. finish straight is deceivingly long. Actually, like it, it uh, you think it looks quite short, but it's actually quite quite long. Um, but it's pretty much the only massive straight. There's kind of the curved straight in the middle of the lap, but yeah, it's about it. The rest of it's quite uh tight twisty track which I think is what makes it so difficult to actually overtake but someone who didn't have to do much overtaking because of his good qualifying was Marcos Ramirez another good result for the Spaniard um obviously he's been in Moto2 for a decent while now I think was it 2019 was his first season or 2020 something like that but he's been in the class for a few years now was at America racing for a couple of seasons got dropped was on the forward bike at the start of the season miserable time for him because the forward bikes is not competitive SDK gets dropped in the middle of the season Ramirez has been really pretty good at these last few rounds and uh, another really good result for Ramirez that's, is that two podiums he's had now so that's you know really really showing and he's secured himself a ride for next season unfortunately at the expense of Roy Skinner who as a rookie you know hasn't really been given much of a chance I suppose next year you think he would make a step but Ramirez you can't really fault him I mean he was really really battling it he actually didn't quite get the podium, did he? He was uh, battling Lopez for it, and he just lost out. But another great ride from him, and so, what, 21, like, one thousandths away from, from the podium? Just considering where the other people have been on that bike, even Bobier the, the season before, where people have been on that bike, he's, he's doing a very, very good job. Yeah, in fairness, it's 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 a sh- shock, really, to be brutally honest. The fact he's been there, it's, it's such a turnover. He's gone from being nowhere to being right up there and uh, it's not like he's holding his breath for a qualifying lap and qualifying fourth and finishing 13th he's kind of showing that the whole package seems to be there for man the last couple of weeks getting a set of podiums really ends off his season and kind of confirms why Royce has been dropped from because the, the results clearly are um, more more further up the grid but like someone who's a lot more experienced in the class as well so it's kind of what to be expected Um. I've always felt Ramirez was a mid-table rider. I've never, I'd never expected him to do much, but now the fact he's up the sharp end, it's actually quite strange seeing him up there because I just never thought he had it in him. But um, you kind of have to just tip your hat to him. He's been very, very solid since he's jumped, uh, shift from the forward bike and got into the the American racing team. So, um, I, I kind of hope that he can carry this momentum into the winter and build upon it and come back next year and maybe can he have a season similar to um Gonzalo's. Gonzalez, um, where he's kind of been roughly top five and um, just good points and solid through the season. 
to be honest, probably at start the year he probably will fade a bit again. I don't think he's going to take this into a championship challenge, for example. I think that it still shows that even though he's he's getting good results, he's still a good bit off the, the top, but he's made such a step as well from, from where he was towards the start of the season. So I must admit, he's um actually really kind of over overdone what I thought he ever could have done. So again, just kind of fair play to him and a big best of luck to him next year because it's going to be going to be tight class next year but you never know then with the prelis might be something he might be um we've seen riders um go forward when a tire changes remember thomas luthi when they brought in the different front dunlop it was basically the end of his career he just couldn't get on when it went backwards similar to davi in gp when they brought in the, the different michelin just couldn't just didn't work for him couldn't get ahead his head around it and uh, that was kind of the end of his career in a way and uh, you, you might see something in terms of the whole class and same in Model 3 next year with the Pirellis. You might see some surprise riders. So maybe he's found form at the perfect time, jumps on a, a Caddox with um, Pirellis in the coming days and probably maybe could be even closer to the front. So you never know what the future's going to hold with the tyre change. It could throw anything into the wind. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do next year. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he can actually carry that momentum forward into the next season. I kind of agree with you that I didn't think he had it in him. I mean, he was with America Bracing for a couple of seasons before, and I think maybe he had like one or two sort of like maybe decent finishes. Maybe maybe got like a top five once or twice, but like didn't really see him sort of week in week out being up there. But the last couple of weekends he has been really competitive, so it has been a bit of a surprise that you see him. And maybe the Predators will work for him. Maybe they won't. I guess we don't really know what's going to happen until we get into the racing next season of course and even throughout the season I think it could be one of those really weird ones where it changes so much because everyone's learning so much a bit like the first year of the triumphs really was kind of a bit of a topsy-turvy season lots of different people fighting for the championship at different points and obviously like you say Tom Luty for example his career was basically ended by a, a tyre change and it, it could happen especially some more of the the veteran riders in the class although not really many of those left now with obviously Sam Lowe's leaving this is obviously his last race I'm trying to think of Probably who's the next most experienced rider in the class? There's not really that many around. Robert. Uh, yeah, probably. Probably is Joe Roberts. Schrotter's been gone now for a, this season, obviously, hasn't he? And yeah, a lot of those sort of riders that were in Moto 2 for a long time have sort of faded away now. So I think, yeah, probably, probably Joe Roberts is one of the most experienced riders, which is a surprise to actually think about because I still think of him as a fairly young guy. But I think he's, I think he's been in the class since like 2018, so... Yeah, a, a decent while for, for Joe Roberts, also going to the American Racing Team, so I guess we'll see actually what's going to go on with that team. But someone who has been fantastic and will be hoping that the tyres make no difference to him is Fermin Adegair. Another win once again, another dominant performance. You just can't believe how good he's been these last few rounds because the, at the start of last season, looked like he was the next big thing. It looked like he was going to be absolutely amazing. And then he just dropped off. He basically, after that collision with Vietti, he just disappeared. Like he was, you know, he was on the, the shopping list of MotoGP teams and all of a sudden, sort of nowhere. Lopez ends up getting uh, Fanati's ride a few rounds later, starts performing, winning races. Adiguez still struggling to get points and top tens and stuff. And it kind of almost continued like that a little bit this year. Start of this year, he made a bit more of a step. I think he was a regular top 10 rider, but Lopez was still fighting for victories and stuff. But then sort of half of the season's almost swapped and Aldeguer has been pretty much there week in, week out. So he won at Silverstone, then sort of did go missing a little bit for a few rounds. But ever since sort of Mandalika, he's been fighting for the win every weekend, right at the front in qualifying and his teammates were the ones struggling. And 
it just looks like it's unstoppable now because they've been to so many different tracks. We were saying that maybe it was the flyaways working the tyres. We've gone to a freezing Valencia today and he still won there. So is Ardegea looking like the favourite, odds on favourite for next year now? Because I certainly think so. It looks like people are going to struggle to stop him. Even Acosta can't go anywhere near him. Uh, no, he's not. Because look what his teammate did last year and look at his teammate this year. That's um, true. I can't see a non calix winning a championship. And I'm probably one of the bigger, bigger, biggers up of um, Aldeguer. I'm a massive fan of him ever since he came into the class. All the hype about him when he was in junior motor two or whatever you class is called. In it. Um, I've been banging the drum about him for a while. And because the fact he's on the speed up or Bosco Scuro chassis, he goes missing because of that, because there's only two on the grid for next year as the empty helmets take uh, take two of them onto the grid for 24. So I, I just don't see it over 22 round season, how that bike beats the Calix with all, like an M1 isn't going to be the Ducati when there's eight Ducatis to two to um, M1. So for me, that's, that's the issue because we all expected Alonso Lopez to come into this year swinging. Now, maybe he's slightly underperformed, had an okay season. He's like P8 in the championship. Um, but I think the level of Aldeguer has gotten him to turn this championship. But the fact is, like, over the last four rounds, he's taken 100 points. His total for the year is, like, 280. That's just, like, put that into context of how many points he's gained to make his championship look so much better. Um, so he's just had such a sweet spot, as well as when it's a bit colder and there's a bit of a, a weird weekend where the, that chassis seems to come to the front. But I... Maybe it's just cynic in me, but I just don't see how the bike, not him, can be fast enough to beat the Calix. Now, again, it's hard to say when we're going to um, Pirelli's next year, but naturally, Pirelli's are soft and they move and they're a bit squishy. And the speed up, as it was formerly known, is a very rigid chassis, more rigid than the Calix. That's why the Calix kind of moves around a bit more on corner and chief. You watch like, Gore, for example, whereas you look at the years gone by with Sam which now all the way up to Sarah very real line but it doesn't drift that much. Sam's one of those ones where he made a shift but probably wasn't right up like it seems very very it seems it makes grip but there's no grip but if there's grip it's kinda like it's kinda like a yam in a way where it's fine grip but there's nothing there there. But if you can play like it doesn't have any kind of fight fight so and then it's actually step the tires but just just judging off of the what we kind of know from his start, start or probably like his start, start the shot is like, like they probably will not be amazing or get probably thinking you're going to have a better because it's probably going to be too, too stiff like a bike again again maybe maybe I'm wrong, wrong. Um, I, I, I hope I'm wrong, wrong it's a really big one about the fight fight for the bike can be up there whatever but I just think, think being on the it's, it's, it's kind of kind of like the old MMM as well as of you never want to win on a bike that's kind of fast in, in terms of numbers and data, especially in the modern day, even in motor two. So it's going to be very tough for him. But in terms of this year, the end of the season, Silverstone, amazing, he's showing off his talent that we all knew he had. Um, Massively taking the shine off of Pedro Costa's end of the season and his title because. Um, I've kind of already forgotten Pedro's in the class, to be honest, because he's kind of been nowhere. Pedro, um, Fermin has been absolutely on fire. He's been winning, make, and he made the, the mistake in Qatar, came back and won, looked 
brilliant there. Looked brilliant here as well today because he got to the front. Can it in fairness to him? You have to tip your hat to him. He tried to go with him and did for a while and closed the gap down. A couple of fastest laps. But in the end, the, uh, the that combination of Bosco Sciorra and Fermin Aldeguer was just too strong. And it's, um, it's a shame he's on that bike because I think he's probably... Uh, odds on favourite like uh, Acosta was this year to win the title if he's on a, a Calix next year but um, maybe he's that good that he can win it on that bike and that, that would be an amazing feat to win it on a inferior chassis in a class that's so tight yeah it would be really really amazing if he could do it I mean I, I can see what you mean about Alonso Lopez obviously last year had a very good sort of end to the season but you know potentially it's it's one of those things where I think he's a bit better than Lopez. So, you know, 100%. Like, and obviously, as we saw in the junior GP, that's how it ended up as well. So, yeah, Lopez didn't quite live up to the hype, but I think Aldeguer is probably quicker and makes less rash mistakes and things like that. And I think that's what's cost Lopez a lot this year as well. So some dodgy passes and, like, he's not, like, a bit nowhere either. I mean, I think you're right about the Bosco Scuro being a little bit hit and miss, but they're going to have double the data next year with the MT Helmets team. Obviously, Agora, another top rider on that bike as well. So, you know, potentially they could, this is their chance to make up ground because a lot of the data is going to be gone. So, you know, they're going to be gaining a little bit more. So hopefully it should help them out. But yeah, you're, you're probably right that it's unlikely that it will win Bosco Scuro, but I'm going to hope. I'm going to, I'm going to say that he's going to be the favourite. That's my, that's my uh, bold prediction. Although you did mention Pedro Acosta, of course, as well, has just kind of been nowhere ever since Adiger turned up, really. I mean, he finished second to him a couple of times, if I'm not mistaken, but the last two rounds, he's just been nowhere. Like, he's just been really struggling. I mean, Qatar, not a massive surprise to see him struggling. It is a flowing circuit. He said he doesn't really like the flowing circuits, but I'm surprised to see how bad he was here. I mean, he was much worse here than he was at Qatar, even. I mean, he's going to have to go by a Renas. I mean, he's been miles clear of a Renas all season. And he's battling with a Renas and... It's weird, actually. He was battling with the Renas, Agora, and Gonzalez, sort of, but really far down the order. It was a bit strange that uh, a couple of good riders were down there with him, but I don't, I don't know what's happened to Acosta. I mean, maybe he's just, like, already checked out. He's not bothered about winning a couple more Moto2 races. He's just focusing on GP. Maybe that's what he's doing, but I just just seems strange because he was so dominant for so much of the season, and then even finishing second to Ardegay, you could say, okay, the Bosco Scuros is working so good he couldn't keep up with him, but the last couple of rounds, he's not even been second to him. He's been miles behind, like really far back. It's it's, it's unfortunate, really, because it, everyone's kind of thinking, "Ooh, are we are we a little bit over over exaggerating how good he is?" And we, like, to be fair, there's no question how good he is. He won the title so early because of how amazing he was throughout the year. And we oh, throughout the year, we tried to build this narrative of. Acosta and Arbolino, but it really wasn't ever going to be anything because the fact was Arbolino got a bit of a lead and that was enough to make a championship go on as far as probably like the summer break roughly and after that he's kind of been steamrolled and um, even today Arbolino's had a tough weekend and he was still beaten by Acosta who's already in my opinion riding the R16 in his head so um, it's it's a bit of maybe Maybe he's thinking ahead at the trying to keep himself fit. He doesn't want to have a mistake in him. He doesn't want to make a silly mistake battling for a win that he doesn't need to do. He just wants to go out and, and finish off a tidy season with some decent results and not kind of override and stuff. And we always know 
next mode or two if you're missing half a percent that's the difference between first and like ninth so you don't need to be missing much to go quite far back but um it's 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 a bit strange right that he's had such a off color end to the season because since when he won the the uh, title he was all about kind of going well on a go and finish the season off and show why i'm champion but um he's kind of done the opposite really he kind of just like drifted off into a mediocre end to the season and was a uh, was kind of like happy enough to win his title and again i think in a way he's already probably probably turned his head with the the gp right and i think that's all he can focus on now and i think he's had an amazing season and we can probably give him give him a bit of slack that he's kind of right tail off towards the end um he's probably not really been under much pressure for for a while i think as well we've seen in a couple of years with Marcus where as soon as the title is done that kind of release of that stress is gone that it's actually quite hard to get back to that level of of where you were so it's probably a lot of reasons i'd mainly put it down to the fact that he's probably thinking already of um tuesday riding the ktm i'm gonna throw this to you here a question about acosta right um, obviously, in Moto3, you know, no doubt he came in straight away as a rookie, he obviously dominated it. But in this Moto2 season that he's had this season, of course, would you say that the field is overall quite weak compared to what we've had in the past in terms of the Moto2 grid? And could that have played into his domination? Because, of course, we've had some of the, obviously, some of the previous riders that were fighting for the championship, like, obviously, Augusto Fernandez was gone, Agora was injured, and like, overall, like, obviously, Arbolino was, like, his top competitor, whereas Arbolino was you know not he had some good races at the season before but wasn't sort of a championship threat at all you know would it be could that potentially be why he's dominated so much just because the, the the field is not so strong because of course we've had Aldeguer's not come good till late Vietti's kind of been in a rough patch we've had obviously a Lopez hasn't had the best season he could have had yeah I can kind of see it the, the thing for me is right I just think that if he does have a slightly higher competition, he has another level. I think you don't need to go, you don't need to go one hundred percent a million miles an hour every lap, every session, when you have maybe five percent over your opposition. And I think for the the whole season, he knew Arbolino he had beat. Arbolino, as soon as was getting mentioned for the GP contract, that was the end of his season because his head was turned. He said a misfiring. His season went downhill a bit, and as well the fact that Arbolino's not six, seven years in that class, he's still relatively inexperienced. We saw it with Vietti last year and a bit this year that, as a newer rider to the class, it's not as easy as going and being consistent. It's probably even more of a, a compliment to Acosta being in his second year, being as consistent as he was. Only had a couple of blips throughout the year with maybe small bit of weather and a crash or two but for the most part he's been really strong and i think to be honest right if he's put under more stress he comes out even stronger um i think there's he has an extra level but i, I do understand that the level of motor 2 is probably in a bit of like the fact that joe roberts now is the most experienced rider joe roberts is not what i would class as like if you go back to when tom lute was the most experienced that was a multiple race winner could have been championship champion on a multiple occasions was a one to five champion back in 2004 i don't know 2004 so I was, <laughs> i'm gonna go and stick with 2004 i think it was him him pedroza rossi that year oh. yeah i think that was the champions that year Oh, that's I was what you were saying, James Bailey, Rossi. I was about to say, I'm, I'm not sure. No, no, there were two champions <laughs> for the year. 
I was, I was digging deep into the archive. You were that, trying to think of the photo, so. the Valencia photo. Where they had to... Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It, well, it was either it was either Rossi in all three, and whoever won the two fifty in all three even with him. But um, yeah, it, essentially back to the point of that. You the most experienced rider there would have been someone who was a world champion, multiple racer in the class, had a good go at multiple multiple um championships. Whereas, like, if we're now talking about the most successful, not the most successful, the most experienced guy in the class being. A guy who's won a like a Mario Kart race at Portimao is kind of um <laughs> kind of a, an odd way to say it, but he's it, by no means is he of that level. Like Roberts on his day is quick, but his day is like three weekends a season, and, and that's probably why he's moved from team to team and um only won one race. And I think there's there's issues there and so did that with him and his his own performance. But um just the overall field is there's just too much of a turnover in the class. Like again, we I mentioned a while ago on um, on Rory Skinner the fact he's lost his right. You either there's so many new riders every year because they're like, oh well, it's just like, oh he didn't win, get rid of him. Oh, we'll get in the next. Fill. Oh he didn't win, get rid of him. We'll get the next fellow. It's like, well no, you need to give him at least two years. Look at Fabio Di Giantonio, for example, and uh, Iker Lacona. I'm I'm a big fan of him. He had a decent career in Moto Two, got up to GP a bit earlier, and is outriding his teammate in World Superbike in my opinion on a Honda doing the best job he can on very limited equipment with that Honda so he got shot out and spat out of the GP kind of career straight away for having one year where he wasn't that bad he had some decent results on the KTM wasn't a million miles off what you could say a co- um, um, Fernandez Augusto Fernandez has done this year so he's he's not been terrible by any means when he was there and he's just been spat up and true away and he's no good and unless he ends up on a Honda this year, which realistically he's not going to know at this point. It's um another one that won't really make it back to the class. So I think to kind of get back to answer the question, I think a lot of the more senior riders left moved up, moved on to different things. A lot of the old timers, your Corsis, your all them have gone and um just the kind of the older riders have gone. So now it's probably a bit more of an inexperienced field and a lot of young riders coming through your likes, your for me and year, like that's sort of level i think they're all at a high level but a lot of them are inexperienced and that's probably the reason why uh costas won it so early is because we didn't have anyone week in week out because we had maybe the first five rounds where arbolino looked to be relatively in his kind of league but then from there on it was kind of it was one of those seasons where um the consistency of the guy in second was never the same as acosta and that was the issue for the season yeah, I'm trying to rack my brain now thinking of anyone that probably has done more races than uh, than Roberts. Maybe Chantra. I don't know when he actually joined the class, but he's Maybe. been around for a good while. But yeah, you jump through most of the teams, you, especially if you jump a bit further back. Obviously, you've got like RW races, got really an experienced lineup. Same with like uh, Bosco Scuro speed up. And Reynas hasn't been in Moto 2 for that long. Jake Dixon, I guess, is probably one of the more experienced riders, 2018. He's definitely up there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it is, it is one of those things where it is these riders that we still don't think have been in their class for that long. It's not like, you know, like you say, Tom Lutie had been in the class since it started, like, aside from, like, one season that was terrible in, like, MotoGP. So, yeah, it's uh, it probably is a bit more of an inexperienced field. I, I kind of agree with you that I think that if he had a better field, he could sort of step his game up. I just thought I'd throw the question, see what you thought, you know, yeah, about it yeah. being a bit of a weaker field. I mean, even last year, I think it was a slightly weak field, maybe. I think um, it kind of has been just the way it plays out. Uh, I think next year it could be quite good if you have some of those Moto3 rookies for this year stepping up a bit like Fodger and Guevara and Garcia, although Garcia has not been too bad. But 
if those guys make another step next year, probably will make the class a bit more competitive again. And obviously you've got Aldeguer and obviously Lopez and a few of the riders of Salach on a on a better bike. So it'll be, be interesting to see how it does play out next season. I think it probably could be a bit of a stronger, closer championship. But I guess we'll uh, no, find... Well, I said that Aldeguer's favourites, actually. I'm guessing, I'm assuming that it's going to be a, a domination on the Bosco Scuro, but maybe the battle for second could be a bit closer. Well, obviously mm. it wasn't that close. To, uh, battle for third, though. Obviously that got won this weekend. Aldeguer is coming out on top ahead of Jake Dixon. But... Somewhere where there was, of course, a championship up for grabs was MotoGP. Obviously, it was a pretty slim chance of there being a change, but still a mathematical change and more of a chance than there was last year. I think that's safe to say. We Nobody thought Fabio Quattararo was going to uh, be able to beat Bagnaia because Bagnaia could have crashed and Quattararo was not going to win the race. So it, it, was, just, it was never going to be won back, whereas... This season, if Banyai did make a mistake, Martin is in a good position to win. And also, with there being the sprint, um, it means that he didn't need to finish so low down in the order. So it was more more possible than last year, but I think we can agree, not the most likely thing. But the sprint race did tee up the main race pretty well. Martin obviously didn't qualify the best, qualified sixth after another weird tyre decision uh, during the qualifying session. But even still... Didn't let it bother him, took the lead pretty early on in the sprint and did manage to hold it till the end, fighting off Brad Binder. So winning that sprint and bringing down the championship lead. So what did you make of that sprint race? Obviously Martin put himself in a good position. Banyaya looked like he was riding pretty tight in that one as well, which you know is pretty reminiscent of what we saw in the last season. Yeah, it was your typical weekend we've seen kind of rinse and repeat since India, I suppose, where Saturday is Harga Martin. Pecos is on Sunday. Peco pulls out three points overall. It's kind of like that would have been if this was with three rounds to go. I think Peco comes away with two points more than when Martin in overall. I think that's just how it goes. It's just one of those weekends where, as this weekend, because it was last weekend, the championship has to be settled. Martin did everything in his power. We talked about this yesterday between us that Peco made a very silly mistake in the sprint of when he got passed by Jorge Martin, he tries to run Martin like out of the road and pick up pick him up to the curb and basically cost themselves more positions and an attract it's so hard to overtake it's it was kind of a needless because in the end it's cost him more and it's given himself more work to do on Sunday and he's he's put again like we've talked of Valencia nobody wants to go to Valencia with a with a, a championship at a at risk of losing like so for me Martin did his job perfectly on Saturday um, obviously there was a whole shenanigans in free practice early on when they were following each other and uh, well that was actually on Friday but the whole kind of weekend was building towards the sprint because as we've seen this year so far Martin in the sprint has just been out of this world he just has the feeling straight away he can go and he can just get up to speed whereas Peko isn't that rider he seems to kind of want to he's more of a rider that is if it's a sprint kind of isn't much to be to be really worried about but when it's a full race it's um he's so much better on the uh the long runs the tires management and just a bit of everything so um in fairness martin he did everything he could on saturday gave himself pretty much the best chance of of getting a potential championship on sunday and to be fair that was kind of his that was his his only that's all he could do he did pretty much exactly what he could do and um, barring any mistakes from 
uh, Bagnaya in the sprint and costing himself even more points. I think it was probably the, one of the best results you could have hoped for if you were neutral or a Jorge Martin fan on Saturday. And I think it built a kind of narrative for San- Sunday that we could actually have a championship battle. Yeah, it pretty much did. I mean, you make a really good point by saying that Bagnaya made a silly mistake. I don't know why he tried to pick up Martin. To me, I'm not sure about you, but I feel like Bagnaya was too focused on Martin. Like, over the whole weekend, you know, he, he didn't like Martin following him free practice. Well, you need to do a lap to get through to Q2. Martin's already done one. Even if Martin follows behind you and does a better lap than you, he's already in front of you anyway. So, like, it doesn't matter. Like, he, he seemed to me like he's too focused on Martin. Like, if I was... Well, it's hard, hard to say if I was in Banyar's situation, but in my opinion, what he should have done was he should have just focused on getting the result he needed, and that was it. He should have just focused on top fives in both races. That's all he needs. Like, Forget what Martin does, because Martin has to win. When you're trying to defend the championship, just assume that he's going to. There's no point trying to fight him for it, because obviously Martin's not a dirty rider, but at the same time, like if you try and be too aggressive with him, you might let the break up. It's like, oh, well, if we touch and you go down, it's, you know, it's one of those things. Why risk that happening or, or whatever? Why, why get caught up in his mind games and stuff as well in, like, in free practice? Like, it was, it was, it was a bit light-hearted, fun and games, wasn't it, in free practice? You know, um, was getting involved and stuff, standing in front of Martin's bike and stuff. It was, you know, it, it, was, it was slightly jovial. It wasn't completely serious, but I felt like he just sort of let himself get sucked in and almost gave Martin more of a chance because Martin's like, well, if I can mess you up and then I can try and win the races you might make a mistake it just feels like it fired him up more and then I, I don't know I just feel like for for Banyaya it was a mistake to to get too dragged into Martin's games it, he should have just focused more on the job at hand if that makes any sense yeah pretty much I think if you're in the Peco camp coming into this weekend you are drilling into his head at every given opportunity do your part, everything else will fall into position. Do not be thinking of what if Zarko was behind me, what will Zarko do? Or is Alex Marcus gonna try and try and play interference or will Digi trying to be just focus on yourself? Don't worry about anything else. It'll all kind of work out. If you do your part, there's enough of a gap, he could have won the championship like that. And I think that was pretty much exactly what he needed to have that mindset coming in. To say he struggled on Friday is kind of it again, it's he doesn't struggle, he just doesn't he focused on other things on a Friday so he's been through Q1 a couple of times this year it's not really something that phases him in him as much uh, obviously it will be better for his whole weekend if he does go straight to Q2 but the whole reason why he's probably so good on Sunday is because he spends more Friday on long runs on a set of mediums that he's run for like 30 laps and he knows what it's going to be like at the end of it at the last five laps and when it's low on fuel and the tyre is getting to the very end so it's um it's part of why he's champion, is why he kind of struggles on the Friday. It's probably part of the reason why Martin hasn't won as many full Lent races, because he's so good on Friday and Saturday. So it's it's changed the whole complex this year of just the way the certain sessions re- require a fast lap as a, a mini qualifying session to get you into directly through. There's certain sessions that are just practice sessions. So it's not like the years gone by where you could kind of build and build and build and hold your breath for a lap, qualify fourth, and you have the race pace and it's it's all done over the weekend kind of nice and easily. You kind of have to sacrifice some part of your weekend for gains elsewhere. So it's um it's it's just the way the current format of GP is and the way you have to 
be towards the front of the grid and qualify. You can't qualify ninth anymore and expect to win races. Um, so he, he did get a bit ruffled on Friday, got kind of joined in the final games, but he got a bit unlucky, got a red flag for Miller's crash as he came out of the pits for his first run, got a yellow flag in his last lap. So it was a bit more than just a Martin, but I definitely think him running off the track, going out to a really dusty part of the track, trying to lose his tail from Martin. No need. He had Alex Marcus behind him. Um, Mar- uh, Martin was already through. It's just not needed. Um, but it was just it was just one of those things where it was kind of all fun and games, but in, deep down you knew that it would have been a travesty if he didn't manage to find a lap in, in Q1 and he does go below the lap record in Q1 if I remember correctly so it was, it was kind of all all okay in the end and in the end then out qualifies Martin on Saturday so it kind of it worked out for him but um, his his goal always is to focus on Sunday and that's where the big points run on offer this weekend as always yeah I mean it seems to have worked for him obviously he's won the championship so you know who are we exactly. to question his tactics but it does seem like especially with the way the GP is now he's put himself more at risk because not only just in terms of position that oh you might not get through Q1 so you have to lay it all on the line in Q1. So that, that's the thing. Like sure. You're doing basically an extra two qualifying laps that you don't, shouldn't have to do. Um, so you, you, you are putting yourself more at risk there. Because obviously that's ultimately where you're absolutely on the limit. You're more likely to crash than potentially in a race. So there is that uh, element to it as well. But yeah, I think overall it's his tactic. And he said in his uh, sort of post-race interview that um, he's, he's going to try and work for next season on trying to be stronger on the Fridays and the Saturdays. But for now, like it's it's not really important. He's just going to enjoy himself. But for next year, it's where he's got to make a step because, let's face it, if he if he's facing Mar Marquez uh, next season, you need to be uh, you need to be scoring at maximum points of the sprint because you can guarantee he'll have to be absolutely on it from Thursday morning. Yeah, he needs to be on it from before he's there. Like he needs to be like doing laps yeah. on the simulator. <laughs> you know, he needs to be uh, getting everything he, ready. It just just in in terms of the, the, what I meant by the Thursday is that. He's going to have to be ready for that mental battle that's facing what we've classed as an alien. Um, yeah, he obviously true. never battled Valentino at his height. He never battled a Lorenzo, a Casey Stoner. So he's he's kind of up against all these nice guys at the moment of Martin and other riders. But um, Marquez will play the media and orchestrate everything like Valentino did, like riders have in the past. So he'll have a four-day weekend every week for the next 22 weeks, next or the next 22 rounds next year. It's going to be so much more, and it's it's maybe that he's has two titles under his belt in GP and stuff. Maybe he's better equipped now for it, but next year he's going to have uh, a task on his hands. Yeah, I think the whole field is going to have a task on their hands, quite frankly. Yeah. And whilst we're talking about Marquez, we may as well uh, talk about his weekend. Obviously, the last hurrah with Honda. Well, the last one for now. He's made it pretty clear that, you know, it could they could get back together in the future. Depends on how it's... Uh, how it plays out and if the bike improves and stuff. I'm sure if the bike becomes competitive, I'm sure it'd be straight back there because clearly there's a very sentimental, emotional part of him. Um, he obviously got the podium in the sprint race, really emotional, stuff on the podium there about it. You know, Honda gave him his chance in the uh, MotoGP pretty much throughout the whole class as well. Obviously in, um, pretty much his whole career, right? Even in 125s, he had Repsol on the side of his bike. Like, I know that he was a KTM sort of protégé to, to start with, but like he still had that support of Repsol, which you know obviously Repsol Honda. Obviously in Moto Two, he jumped up, was on a basically literally a Moto Two bike in Repsol Honda colours. Effectively, it was what it was. And obviously did the few seasons there. Jumps up into Moto GP on the Repsol Honda. Twenty thirteen wins a title. Then again in fourteen, 
15 happened. 16, obviously, then he uh, he won the championship again. 17, 18, 19, obviously, then there was the whole thing with the incidents and with with 20, and obviously, it's not been quite the same since. But he's been with Repsol Honda since he was, like, a really young kid, effectively. Not even... It goes further back than his first MotoGP season. And just... You know, that crew as well. Not even, like, Santi Hernandez was his crew chief in Moto2. I don't know if he was his crew chief in 125, so I I can't remember that far back. But Santi was definitely there in Moto2. And obviously he was sort of overseen by someone when they first got up into MotoGP. But that crew, that family, he's been there all those years. He's won, he's had a lot of success. You could tell it meant a lot to him to try and get one good result for them. And I think in the, it's a shame for him in the main race that it went the way it did because through pretty much no fault of his own, he was out of the race. And with the way that race played out, it, it could have been a Marquez podium, potentially a Marquez win. It's the kind of race where he'd take advantage, especially if he thinks someone's a bit weak. But yeah, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a great race for him, wasn't it, in the sprint? And just overall a nice like last hurrah weekend and definitely the end of an era kind of thing. Yeah, it, it was nice that he got a good result in the sprint because I I personally felt then it was going to be a lot harder to do it on Sunday because of the fact that he'd have a lot longer to kind of maintain the speed and maintain the pressure. And on the Honda, it's the sprint where you can kind of do something. You kind of know you can master something over 10 or 12 laps, whereas it's 27, 25 laps. He eventually is going to crash. It's It's going to happen, so... Maybe he comes out with a brilliant P4 today. Even with all the crashes and all the incidents, I still don't think he wins. Um, I don't think he beats Dijia, who, during some of your points there, I just found out a while ago, is after getting a three-second penalty. Or guess what? Yes, the, the tyre pressure. I see you've edited the notes. <laughs> yeah, tyre pressure. He's dropped to P4. Binder's gotten a penalty. Um, Binder's got a penalty. So, yeah. The, no, sorry. Binder's gone up to the P3. Oh, no, he's had a penalty. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just got a podium is what I tried to yeah. say. My my brain got <laughs> fuddled there, but um, we all came into the the last few rounds thinking we might go to Valencia and the title could be decided by this. Unfortunate, Digi has lost the podium because of it, but um, it's just it is what it is. I've seen a few bits there from Frankie Carcetti saying that like he was starting in P eleven. It was a look at a draw. What I could do with the tires, it was it was there was not much we could try and do. It was either basically go nowhere or have a tire that worked. So it's kind of. Um, part of the issue we, we kind of touch later towards the, the end final few points on the current state of GP but um, so but kind of back to the Marquez point to the fact that he's still probably he, he might get a podium and like he might have been P4 today and got Binder's podium but I, I don't see him beating Pecco I don't see him beating Zarco I don't see him beat any of the caddies on um, actual speed or racecraft even if it's a if it's a track that's slightly unforgiving he could be one of those riders crashing and it's just the current way the Honda is he's like Miller Binder made a mistake in there I'd imagine Binder had nearly identical moment to to Jack it's just he was kind of quick enough to maybe save it pick it up and run on because it's exact same part of the track he runs on so much that it's probably just he's changed direction he's had a little moment he's like I'm not crashing I'm going straight whereas Jack was maybe a bit more stubborn and again was thinking I can't afford to run off same I have to thing try happened and... yesterday as well pretty much he ran... that's why he lost the lead to Martin which, like, literally exactly yeah so... he didn't go as wide but he ran wide yeah again another moment and in, in the sprint you're probably going a bit hotter so you maybe have a bit more temp in the tyre so maybe it's just a bit uh, of a main race kind of issue where that's what costs them more but 
in terms of markets it was it was going to be a tough weekend from um a stop and start track like this was always going to suit him more but like nonetheless the honda still nothing like he came third in the sprint yesterday the next honda was in p18 his teammate got injured into turn eight on friday morning didn't race for the rest of the weekend honda's just in a mess um and we've kind of had one of the worst seasons if you're a Marcus fan for for a while because f- for a while you can kind of go back a bit right he was injured he then came back from injury then he went back out again then the arm wasn't right so it's was constant Marcus isn't right Marcus is back he's still not right but now for the whole year he's been here and well been here for the most part after Portimao but he's been there for the most part as you've seen that he wasn't able to make anything happen with that Honda so I think this has been a worse year for Marcus fans because of the fact that it's kind of a realisation that he was never going to do much this year and the fact he ended up miles off in the championship, crashed out of so many races, kept crashing. Saxoning was a nightmare, one of his worst weekends. And uh, the fact that he has have to leave Ducati or leave for Ducati is a massive, massive shame for uh, for Honda because just still more titles to be won there from that still a combination that could win it. He has said he's going, he will go back if 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 things change, but. Mm. It'd be I I don't see it to be honest. Um, I don't know about you, but I I just don't see him riding a Ducati and then thinking, yeah, let's go back to the Honda. Well, I mean the Honda. If the Honda starts winning again, I'm sure he will. I'm sure it'd be pretty quick to go back. But uh, I can't see uh, Marini and Mir developing it into a race winning bike particularly. So, yeah, I guess we'll uh, see how that one goes. But yeah, obviously the last race for Mark from Mark on the Honda didn't end the best way unfortunately for him so we may as well talk about the main race now whilst we're actually moving on from the sprint and obviously initially the start was slightly different than yesterday because Maverick Vinales was actually demoted due to um, a penalty in warm-up for going the meatball flag now I didn't watch warm-up but I have seen the clips of his bike sort of blew up in turn one and then he does pull off later on on the lap I don't know how early he got the meatball flag but I don't know. Seems slightly harsh to me. If um... he did three corners with the, basically was what it was from where he went out and when he went off, it was three corners. So that's the yeah. level of leniency that he was given. Okay, I, I guess so. But on the first clip I've seen, the bike blows up. But by the time he looks behind him, the smoke has cleared. So I don't know. It seems that seems a little harsh to me, actually. Um, t- to be honest, unless if, if the flag was waving immediately, then yeah, I guess so. He should have got straight off the track, but. Maybe he didn't see the flag for a corner or two, but either way, obviously that changed the complexion of the race because that put Banyaya on pole position, and we know Banyaya with the whole shot is pretty good, and he did take the lead early on. Martin immediately pretty much got up to second place, and the hunt was on, but going into turn one, was it lap two or lap three? I mean, I'm not sure. Three, I believe. Yeah, I think it was lap three, but pretty early into the race. We almost had an exact carbon copy of what we had last week with uh, Banyai almost going to the back of Digi Antonio. Martin did the same with Banyai. Got sucked in with the wake into turn one. Almost hit Banyai at the back. That would have been a controversial end to the championship if that had gone down. Although if they both fell off, then I suppose Banyai would have still won. So it wouldn't have been that controversial, I guess. But it was so close to contact. Martin goes off the track and drops himself straight back down into, what, P8. And from there... It looked like the championship was pretty much over because Banya is leading the race, so he's too high up. Martin's got to find his way back through. I personally thought he probably could get back through, but of course, didn't end up being that way. Made some pretty aggressive passes, a pretty aggressive pass on, uh, I think, Alex Marquez. I think he was quite clean, but pretty aggressive. But unfortunately, it went wrong when he passed Mark. 
obviously sort of tries it into turn four, gets a decent bit alongside. I actually thought the commentators were quite harsh with what they said. They were like saying it was never on, but he pretty much got along. He was just slightly too far back. It wasn't like as crazy as they made out it was. Um, they acted like he'd come from absolutely miles back, but he was he was relatively close. He just didn't quite. It was still a mistake, and he bodged the pass obviously. But I don't think it was quite as egregious as people were saying. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but just not enough for Mark to be able to see him pick up, which obviously is on Martin. He's got to get along enough enough alongside. Wipes him and Marquez out. Pretty big high side for Marquez. Fortunately, was okay by the looks of it, but that was it. That was the championship over. And I'd love to see what you think of those two incidents, but just a shame. It's a shame it ended that way because there was still like 20 odd laps after the race. Bit of a damp squib. That was it, championship over. And then at least for a while after that, the race became a bit of a procession, really. Yeah, get rid of the wings for turn one. That was, we've seen at Magello this year, Alex Merrick is almost skittling people at 160 miles an hour to turn one. Uh, last week out we saw a guarantee there's been other ones this year in the mid-pack we haven't seen um it's it's like on tnt sports which is what we both would be watching you have a current rider who's been a test rider for a team who knows he's at the, the same we'll say level of experience with the current bikes as danny pedroza in terms of testing maybe slightly behind now because he's been out of it for a bit but he still has the knowledge and he says when you're in the wake of something, it has like a vacuum effect where it pulls you in towards the bike. So, like Peko said after Qatar, didn't break any bit later. I just wanted to be close to him. And I said, it just didn't stop. It just kept getting dragged in. I had to pick the bike up. I was lucky I didn't smash, smash those board off, basically. Exactly. I didn't hear anything from our team. But, like, you know, for fact, it's the exact same thing where he's braked. Try to maybe think, right, if I can be close to him, get a run and just absolutely give him the block pass of all block passes into turn two, maybe turn four. Like, these riders are thinking so far ahead that he's obviously not thinking, well, Maybe I might get pulled into this corner here. He's thinking I have to be literally on his back wheel so that I can try something. But Peko's not easy to pass by any means. So, And then it's just it's one of those things where he's getting pulled, literally pulled in by the, the drag and the wake behind Peko to the point where it's getting so dangerous. And we're going to see huge accidents from this. And because it happens at the end of straights where they're going so fast that the, the air is being completely disturbed, it's going to be a helicopter crash. It's literally going to be a ridiculous mistake it will look a ridiculous mistake should i say and it's going to be a terrible crash so for the first one not much martin could only picks the bike up and uh it's kind of lucky that uh martin doesn't make more contact with peko because because when martin's after picking it up you imagine a bit more contact to peko peko would probably be the one that would fall and martin might just go straight on into the gravel and then then what would be the situation if martin is taking peko out and manages to continue and is down at like p12 if he wins the championship does he like get a, a what what's what happens then i always wondered because if you take your title rival out blatantly or by a big mistake and you you can't just get a one long enough penalty for that because you've won the title by taking him out so in my eyes it's a bit of a gray area of kind of i don't know how the, the rule book would handle that but uh the second one you just keep the championship i feel like if i remember i think if lost cap is in charge anyway <laughs> well, yeah if it was 40 years ago this way or 30 years ago for loris hey he's uh, a safety officer so yeah safe safe move that yeah exactly yeah that's clean that was clean back in my day and it was for him um if you don't know the incident one but look up loris cap in harada was at 94 uh, 98. 98. It's the... Yeah, it was Rossi was won it. Yeah, Rossi won um, it. It's the most blatant 
takeout you'll ever see in your life. You think Messiah was stood. bad? Like <laughs> this is outrageous. So it's um, it was it's hilarious. Just it's, it's hilarious that it stood because he's like. Harad is getting his knee down and like Cabrassi is accelerating towards the corner just turns directly into the corner and just runs up the inside smashes into him and puts him into the gravel runs wide Rossi goes through wins the race Cabrassi wins it on 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 the championship by the points and I don't know exactly what the penalty was it must have been a penalty because it's in no means was it not I don't think he got a penalty it was ridiculous it was so bad it's one of those things where like to this day, you still don't understand like what the stewards were doing or what happened. But um, in terms of the Martin Mark is one, I feel Mark is again if he's unsighted fully, completely fair enough. He can't really can't really argue the point that he's maybe a bit stubborn. But when I the first few times I watched it, it feels like he's kind of leans on Martin a small bit. Martin is committed, and it's kind of happened. It's aggression for Martin. Um, it was going to happen. Um, Marquez took Obezeki very very silly at the start of the race. Uh, if you haven't seen that one, I watched replays back. He just rode into the side of him. There's been some serious words from the VR46 crew and camp, as you'd imagine, when it's uh, you know who's at fault. But it was a blatant. It, how he gets it's. I actually haven't it's seen. It's more of a penalty. I saw that if, the, it was investigated, but I haven't seen the crash. Jump on Twitter there, and you'll see it straight because it's everywhere. It's he just rides through him. It's a silly mistake, and it's uh, a real fast crash with Bezeki. Bezeki said he does no time wasting. There's no point wasting time talking about this person. Um, again when it comes to anything anything Rossi related comes to anything to America, America it's always going to be a kind of a, a war word so um, it's it was just a, a horrible incident and he, again how he got away without a penalty for that is, is mind boggling because he's like just gone for a move that it's, it's a lot worse than what Martin does in my eyes like uh, Martin is halfway alongside him and it just is Mark is, is either a bit stubbornly turning in trying to squeeze him or is a bit unsighted and unfortunately Martin has to pick the bike up and that's where the, the high side comes from Mark but it's um oh yeah it, I see it now I've got it up worse or what do you think is it worse do you think it's worse than Martin's error I think it is by a mile uh, yeah probably because he does he just ride it's like much. the Lopez Dixon incident it's not probably quite as bad as that but yeah I, 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 I don't know. I think Bezek could have picked the bike up a little bit, to be fair, but yeah, it definitely just kind of just ride into him. Yeah. Yeah, but um, in, in terms of Martin, he has to try and he's trying and trying and trying. And when the mistake happened at turn one, I knew he was going to crash, essentially. It was, um, it was, it was on the cards. It was just one of those yeah. things where, he, like, some people think, oh, maybe he can come back. He's not going to overtake everyone and get through cleanly. There was going to be a mistake. He was, he was going to go over the limit. There, and... To be fair, if he'd got past Marquez, he'd been behind yeah. Zarco. And yeah, Zarco was behind fairly... Magnaia, so... Zarco yeah, was just left him was... through, obviously, so... Yeah. Yeah, well, it was close, like, but it was just... I felt like he had just seen red, like it was uh, Marquez, kind of Argentina, kind of... I think he'd have shredded his tyre. I think that's what would have happened. Yeah. I think, I think he could have got back through, but I think he would have destroyed the tyre. Definitely, yeah. But uh, to kind of finish up with the, the incident, I think... Turn one, we all know it was, it was error to call it. And like anyone who thinks error isn't a bad thing is just, it's just silly, really. That the fact that week in, week out, we have right out devices failures, we have these all these silly things. And again, we'll, we'll kind of cover this after the, the championship and the KTMs and stuff. But um, I suppose that's probably everything really on the instance. Just again, it's a silly feature of the sport at the moment, the error, because it causes so many issues. It, it just doesn't help Michelin at all and it doesn't help racing. 
Um, again, I know it's prototype racing, and if they want to build a massive machine of aero ability and all this, it's amazing. But I want to see good racing. That's kind of the bottom line for me. Yeah, it's it's not MotoGP time trial, is it? It's you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's not MotoGP. Yeah, it's MotoGP racing. But yeah, it's uh, so we're pretty much in agreement then that it was kind of a bit of a race incident between Martin and Marquez. Marquez perhaps did lean on Martin a bit, but I don't think maybe he could see him, but. You, you yeah. do sense it. I imagine he sensed he was there. One hundred percent. You do feel it right, and yeah. it's turn four. You know that's one of the main opportunities over yeah. So yeah, it's it's one of those things. But it was a shame that the championship had to end that way. But I think, like like you say, as soon as the mistake was made at turn one, it was always going to end in disaster, really, because he was going to have to just go away for the limit. Which you know, it was yep. just just a shame that it, that it did play out that way. And then after that, the race kind of, well, there was still like 22 laps to go. So it was kind of like, oh, okay, <laughs> there's, a, there's a decent bit left in the race. He could have fought his way back through if he's a bit more patient, potentially. Um, because, you know, afterwards, the race became pretty chaotic because ultimately, as, this, as we were sort of watching um, this happen, as we were sort of watching um, Martin overtake Vinales, we actually missed the crash initially. We cut to it very late on. But we were actually, we cut to a pass for the lead as Binder overtook Banyai. He'd been closing up to him. He overtook him. And then it actually turned out later that uh, Banyai had let uh, Binder through. It's shown in the replay. He just looked over his shoulder and let him through. Um, that was actually before Martin had crashed. But obviously Banyai maybe knew that as Binder behind just thought he'd let him through rather than having a risk, you know, risking it. Also, from Banyai's point of view, if Martin's still behind you, that's actually a very smart move to let Binder go and let him pull away because Martin's got to try and win the race. So, uh, you know, maybe they were still thinking of that because obviously Martin wasn't in the race at that point as far as he was aware. He didn't know he'd fallen off yet. So um, it was pretty good play there. But even still, Binder took the lead. Very shortly afterwards, Miller took the lead, which led us with a KTM 1-2. I don't know about you, Dill, but I was thinking, this is it then now. KTM's win streak is over. They're definitely winning this race because... Banyai is not going to risk anything now um, because, well, at that point, obviously, he didn't know. But once he found out, he probably wasn't going to risk an injury. Maybe he was going to go for the win, but it didn't look like he had the pace anyway compared to KTM. So, like, he was struggling a little bit. You've got one KTM in the lead who has been rapid basically the whole weekend. And basically, his issue has been being stuck and overtaken by Ducatis. So, he's finally in front of the Ducatis. Got his teammate as a back marker. Well, not a back marker, sorry, like as a wingman um, sort of behind him. And I was thinking KTM 1-2, pretty much sealed on at this point. I'm sure KTM will probably start to think that too. But as it happened, um, obviously Binder... But basically, I think we were watching the replay of something. It might have been the Martin crash. Uh, we were watching the replay. All of a sudden, we cut back to the live feed. And Binder's P6 all of a sudden for the lead. Uh, he runs wide at, what is it, like turn 11. He almost loses the front. Let's put the bike up. Goes all the way to the long lap penalty and rejoins in P6. And then a few laps later, at the same corner, we see a KTM tumbling through the gravel, and it's Miller. Uh, the same incident, pretty much, except he crashed, instead of just being able to pick up the bike and running wide. And that was it. KTM went from easy 1-2, well, not easy, but pretty much uh, sealed on 1-2, at least as far as I was concerned, to no podium at all. Should have been an easy 1-2, if they did their job correctly. Um, it's typical Miller. Is the, I'm going to start with Miller. 100%. Definitely. It's it's uh, like I I'm a big fan of Miller and I, I do like him and I've I actually want him to do well but unfortunately it is just typical Jack Miller I'm afraid. Um, actually, didn't he crash at that same corner last year actually? Probably. <laughs> like I'm fair. I know two did. two years ago he's on the podium but yeah yeah is that when he was battling with uh, Mumbadelli? 
Yeah. Um, like, he goes well here, and again, he was having a very good weekend, had a bad crash on Friday, but... Um, yeah, when I saw him crash, and I saw the gesticulating to himself in the in the gravel of like how angry he was, and you're like, well, <laughs> you've been here before. Like it's it's like the commentary was saying, saying, oh, Miller knows this situation well. He's been here before, but like he's been here before and thrown away like by the shredding a tire. Like he's not a, and he was on to he was on to break a record of the first rider to win on three different classes. Imagine Jack Miller having that record yeah. with the likes of. Uh, Valentino didn't do it. Lorenzo didn't do it. Uh, Maverick is still trying. Uh, so there's been there's been so many people out there who haven't managed to do it. So imagine that list of uh, historic names, and then Jack Miller is the one to do it. So he, he might still do it, maybe next year. Um, but for fair enough, Binder makes mistake. It's so easily done. The track's gone cold. But like again, Jack, he always does this like where he's doing well and he'll just throw it down the road. I think he did it couple of times mid like he did it such a bad weekend at Le Mans at the start of the season if you remember where he um, blamed his sprint race crash for a bad tyre a bad tyre decision and then crashed on the right tyre decision in the race so he's, he's a bit of a crasher he's the way he rides I always feel is just he's always like overloading the front and he always has these kind of similar crashes and stuff and when he's on it he's brilliant but just the fact that the matter is he's just not as good as Binder in my eyes um, his one lap speed is very much his like his folklore kind of stand up point that he's he's brilliant in that sense. But it's um, it's it's just overall the full package has never been there with Jack. And for example, like last year when he or not last year, the year before last when he went racing or might have been last year actually, he did it twice where he raced in the Aussie Superbike Championship on the V four and like one of the rounds he actually crashed out of like so. Like if you're doing one of those things, like I'm, I'm not saying you don't crash, like, but sure you're not on your limit that you crash, like in a way, like. But I don't know, maybe I'm wrong in seeing it around that way. But I think just, you're right. um, Like when you're coming to do a wild card at a national yeah. level race, like, okay, there is an element of expectation that like people probably expect you to win because you're a merge GP rider, and there is that you've got to try to deal with that. But at the same time, you can't be crashing out like that's you know much much worse a look like. And it is, yeah, it is Miller written agree. all over, isn't it, to, to, to make these kind of mistakes. He's done it throughout his career, out of good positions. He, he's won a few races. Uh, again, I kind of agree with you that when the commentator's like, he's been in this position before, it's like, yeah, he, he kind of has, like, a couple of times, but he's not really won that many races, and he's definitely not won them in dominant fashion, particularly. And, well, he has when they've been wet. He's, won, like, he, he's won one yeah. race in dominant yeah. fashion, that was Matei. Yeah. The other ones have he's been... He's not won a normal race ever, like, has he? No. Like, which I suppose this wasn't a normal race in fairness but yeah it's not like he's not been out front leading races a lot um, obviously he didn't inherit the lead of Assen until very close to the end he didn't inherit the Rossi should have won that one yeah well yeah and that was obviously a very weird red flag wet dry like kind of weird transition race obviously Hareth 21 uh, he wasn't anywhere near pump. winning until yeah obviously Quattara got arm pump uh, obviously then he won at Le Mans which again was another weird flag to flag race he won, obviously, then at uh, Mategi the year after, right? And uh, that was another strange yeah. race. So he's he's not like he's not a serial race winner like they were acting like. So yeah, it is. Uh, it, it's not unexpected to see Miller crash out of these positions, and he's had a pretty poor season in general. Really, he had some he's had some highlights, but he's been miles off his teammate overall. And uh, yeah, it's 
pretty much just ended it in that same that same fashion, unfortunately. I think it's it's been a good season for Binder in terms of how much he's had over over Jack because Jack's come in and the bike has made a step and he's been really good over one lap and kind of to be fair he's gone missing for so many parts of the season where like he's just down in P16 and like the whole carbon frame came and it was like oh we're going to and kind of like one step back and it was just it's just a messy season for Miller and I think to be honest right for most people it's better than he probably was going to do a lot of people thought he'd go and would be like points would have been a good result from kind of it was what a lot of people thought that because he was on the best bike in the grid and because he was in the factory team that's kind of how he was getting podiums and the odd win and stuff like that but it's it's still a mystery his season why he's been Binder that far was off pretty much there tracks. week in week out wasn't he like that yeah exactly if you out of a between 100% you'd imagine Binder's probably got about ninety percent out of a season. Obviously, had a few failures, like a right height to fail, right height device failure, and a few other weird kind of incidents throughout the season where he's had bad results and the odd kind of crash and stuff. But Jack has just like gone missing for like periods of the season where like he's qualified, has made out a Q one, P twelve in the sprint, and maybe P nine in a kind of an attritional race on a Sunday, and that's kind of his weekend. It's just um, it's it's just it's Jack Miller to a T and. With Binder being so good, I think people didn't understand when Binder was up against Oliveira because Oliveira is really, really, really strong, and on that equipment, everybody thought Binder should be doing more against Oliveira. But the fact we put a multiple race winner in in Jack in there and someone who's been in the class, he's definitely one of the most experienced. When came off the Ducati, brought all the wealth of knowledge of that bike over, and Binder's made him. Binder's demolished him for most part of the season. When he's on it, he's there. He's in. He's in the back of shot with Binder, but he's never. I've never. T- I've can't think of any weekend at all this season where I've gone. Jack is so much quicker than Binder this weekend. There's been no point this season that I can remember. Anyway, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Portimao, but they were still pretty close there. Yeah, but didn't didn't Binder like beat him in all the races? I think Miller did well in the sprint, but yeah, I, I can't remember. But Maybe. that was basically Miller's best weekend. Was literally the first one. That's that's like yeah, a crazy so. part. Yeah. It's, it's a it was a it's a weird season. I think it's been a good season overall for KTM because Brad has been so consistent. He's had so many Q two visits and he's been thereabouts and he's had great race speed and overall it's been a good season. And to be honest, it would have been a brilliant season if he went out today and wins it just on on a, a standard. Because like last year he should have won it. Well, he not should have won it. He had a great chance of winning last year. Showed great speed, but um, this year then in the lead, of course, easy track to make a mistake. It's a horrible track to race in these conditions, and made a small mistake. And you can you can defend Jack and say he's made a small mistake, which he has. But one of them crashed, one of them ran wide. So it's kind of it sums up their seasons that when Brinder makes mistakes, he still gets a podium because he finished third with the penalty, and Jack has barreled himself through the gravel to finish the season. So it's just. It just shows the, the gap in performance and skill probably between the two riders and it's a reason why I like I look at Jack and I think he's on very well for himself being in the factory KTM team and the factory Ducati team. Like I kinda I kinda think I'm like, how did he ever even get them seats? But here he is now and he's gonna have next year and I'd imagine probably shipped off then. I don't think he'll be kept after twenty four. Yeah, it's hard to say. It depends how well it costs to get some. Um but yeah, yeah his, Marquez will be available at the end of next season again. You know, if he wins on Ducati, he might want to try something else again anyway. So he could be potentially available. So 
yeah, he does put the Miller at a little bit of risk. Uh, but whilst we're talking about the KTMs and obviously their their fall, as we've got it written down in the notes, um, mm-hmm. Brad Binder, obviously he made that mistake initially, dropped down in the pack to like sixth place or whatever. Whilst trying to get back through, he pulled a very aggressive pass. Well, it wasn't really a pass, was it? It was uh, He kind of barged into Alex Marquez, something we have seen from Binder pretty regularly uh, throughout his entire MotoGP career. But even this season when we're trying to say, Oh, you know, but like they're, they're doing pretty, like he's been doing pretty well this season. He's been there pretty much week in, week out, but he's still been making these mistakes where he still actually just goes a bit over the line with his passes. He bashes people out the way. Obviously, he bashed Alex Marquez out the way today, picked up a penalty, um, served it in what I thought was quite a clever way um, to pass Vinales and then let him back through to technically drop a position. Uh, obviously, that's a debate of its own whether you should be allowed to do that or not, but that's how he did it. But again, it's it's Miller making a botched pass on someone, knocking them wide and picking up a penalty. It's something that it's not even that you know that far away that that last happened. In Mandalika, did it twice. Like he generally like did did the same thing twice to people. Um, obviously, everyone makes mistakes when making passes every so often. So we saw it with Martin today. He's not picked up. A, well, actually, I think he has picked up a penalty for a botched overtaking attempt earlier on in the year to Austria. But you you know what I mean? Like everybody makes these mistakes occasionally, but Binder seems to do it pretty regularly. And it's something that it's probably his biggest weakness, I would say, is that he he doesn't sometimes know when to just just to dial it back a touch and just to make sure that the pass is clean. So I know he gets a bit desperate and does these aggressive things. And obviously, then the penalty as well. He picked up a needless penalty. Yeah, right. It didn't affect him too much in the end because he served it quite well. But yeah, just just uh, I, I don't know. It, it keeps happening, and it's definitely a problem. Yeah, he's very aggressive. He's one of the most aggressive riders, so he's always going to he's always going to probably have one or two of these moments through a season, but I felt this year he's probably had more, and I think the fact of the matter is when last year he qualified 14th and finished 6th, he's like, oh, that was a great race. I overtook XYZ. I had the speed. He had such advantage, where now he's on a slight, well, he's on a, a better bike. I don't know where classic compared to last year's bike, a, a good chunk better, but now he's battling P3, 4, 5 and 6 instead of finishing 6 after battling 11, 12th and 10th so he's kind of in a different area on track I feel and I feel like for as always in any more sports the further up you grid harder is to overtake so I think putting on top of the fact that you have the tyre pressures you have the bikes are just not easy to overtake on they're just so hard to have racing side by side with and I think like if we had a bit more of a 2017 18 regs at the moment, I think he'd be making overtakes every single lap in every corner. Maybe he wouldn't be winning races, but he would be so good in the battle. I think he'd be able to overtake anyone anywhere. He's just that good, and I think he has that level. But the issue is, I think, is just maybe the KTM isn't exactly where he needs it, and he doesn't still always get the, the front row that he needs to qualify to give himself the opportunity to win a race. And uh, I think... To be honest with you, I think as well there's a bit of disrespect to Small, but I'm a huge Binder fan. I've been I've been a massive fan since 16 when he won a Hurret from the last uh, position on the grid that day. That was a fabulous race for him, and um, he's just I've always been a huge fan. When he moved up to Moto Two, the way he was drifted on the the Red Bull bike there was beautiful. And I thought when he got up to GP, he's going to do something special. Wins his third race in Brno, second race, third it was race. Third, because there's the two Hurret races, and then. Bruno Double her right, yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 COVID year, and um, I thought he'd kick on, but of course, then we, he's been kind of struggling overall to get a whole weekend together, and I thought this weekend after he 
his good sprint gets a lead when Peko kind of leads him through. Turns out Peko let him through because he said his front tire felt terrible and he needed someone in front of him to bring the temperature up. Um, that <laughs> oh, was a big yeah, reason. Then. So that's Fair enough. that's why he looks behind and doesn't kind of like get past. He wanted someone there. And again, maybe in his head is like if some guy tears off the rope up the road who has better speed and wants to win one race a season, it'll win the championship for me. I don't need to win. And in the end, he wins it. But uh, it was a kind of a coy race, I suppose, in a way from Bagnier with everything on the line. But back to Brad, I feel like in India didn't put any silly moves on anyone. In Austria, didn't risk anything on Peko. He's battling like the likes of Alex Marquez in sixth. He'll risk everything because he just doesn't care. Luke Ramini doesn't care. If he's not battling for the front positions, does not does a lack of care and a lack of kind of um a lack of um respect for his actions in a way, I suppose. Maybe that's just a, a mindset. Maybe a bit of frustration comes out. I definitely think he loses the rag a bit when he's on the bike. Uh, I think that's what makes him very good in a way though. So it's kind of um he has to balance it perfectly where you need to get the right kind of margins, the right kind of mixture and stuff of extreme aggression but to be clean at the same time because he's had more incidents this year than he's ever had in his career I'd say and I think there's a couple of reasons for it but definitely he's not innocent in that as well so it's uh, something he'll have to work with with KTM to get the bike better in terms of getting him in positions where he doesn't need to be as aggressive as much but it's going to be it's going to be hard for him to kind of change that because in modern GP if you want to make any overtake you have to be absolutely on the limit always do you think it's an element of then when he's behind someone like Alex Marquez, he thinks just get out of the way, you're holding me up kind of thing. Whereas 100%. when he's behind someone like Banyar, he's like, right, he's on the limit anyway, trying to keep up with him. Whereas when he's just made a mistake, he's like, well, I was race winning pace, so get out of my way. I think it's like that. It's exactly like it. Like we go back to uh, Argentina Americas where he was so much quicker, he didn't show anyone any respect because he was like, four seconds a lot quicker you can break 100 meters deep and you can do this too but when you have that sort of closing speed and when you have that in the suppose in, in binder sense when he thinks he has so much more speed he's going to make the move earlier and risk it faster and try and make something happen quicker to get himself back to the Jorge martins the peckles and, and the like at the front so i i think the race is where he started out at the front this year he's been incredibly clean he's been respectful everything's fine it's when he's had a bad start the right out device has failed off the line whether he's gotten picked up in turn one, it's the races where he's gone backwards, where he's had to go forward very quickly and aggressively that he's had these um these incidents and he's gone over the limit. Like he had a penalty in Mandalika, penalty today, definitely had a couple of other throughout the seasons for um a few misdemeanors. Like if you go back to Hareth in the sprint in the main race, look how clean he was there and aggressive, but he didn't have to do it for P ten, he was doing it for the lead. So I think it's a maybe it's just a bit of Maybe a small bit of ignorance in his head that he knows that he should be at the front and he knows that on the day the bike should be at the front. And then when he is behind a fourth tier Ducati, he's thinking, Jesus Christ, why am I here? Like this this guy is holding me up and he just gets frustrated and just lets the brake off in a way, I suppose, is, is probably the, the way I see it. Yeah, I think that's probably about right with the, with what it is because it does seem like when he's got this, it's more when it's got the red mist. Like he made a mistake trying to pass yeah. Marini uh, in Mandalika and then. Obviously, he then absolutely rams Oliveira out the way later on because he's thinking yeah. that he shouldn't be in front of me anyway. So, yeah, it is one of those things. I think it definitely gets worse when he gets a bit more annoyed, which does happen, but you know, it's, it seems to be Binder quite regularly more than most of the other riders. But Fabio, Digi and Antonio, obviously the rider that, as of right now, doesn't have a confirmed MotoGP seat. Looked like his career was pretty much over halfway through the season, but the last few rounds, ever since Phillip Island, he has been unbelievable, fighting at the front every week, 
winning obviously last time out at Qatar, almost winning again today, just not quite been able to beat uh, uh, the, the two the two riders ahead. Of, well, not the two riders, obviously Banyai ahead of him, obviously finishing second on the road. But whilst recording this podcast, obviously, like you mentioned, he has received a penalty, so he's actually finished fourth place. But even still, I think his sort of end of the season has been so good. I don't think it matters too much, right? He knows he finished second on the road today. The, yeah, he's not going to get the trophy to take home with him. That's a bit of a shame. But ultimately, when you're trying to get that that uh, that result, trying to get the, the, the job is what he's trying to get at the end of the day, that's what's being focused. And do you think he's now in the driving seat for that VR46 Ducati ride? Because I certainly think it's, it's his to lose now at this point because of the last few rounds he's pulled out, they'd be silly to not take him because if they take the settings that Carcetti's put into the Ducati... He should be a top-flight rider. He's probably an upgrade on Marini at this point now. They're actually probably winning because of the way that this has panned out. Uh, it's already done in my eyes. I think it's just been dragged out. It's a bit weird because Valentino's interviewed on the grid and he said, we'll make a decision tomorrow. They're testing on Tuesday. It's a bit, <laughs> it's a bit, I know he's always been one of the more delayed-back guys and there's the stories from back when he was teammates at Colin Edwards that... He could get up out of, off the couch and kind of half asleep and jump on his letters, go straight out and race, and that's the way he was. Whereas Edwards had like a whole hours of procedures to get himself in the position to race. So he's always been a bit laid back. Always, always kind of was never very good on Friday. Built towards towards the Sunday. So maybe in his post career of management and stuff like that, it's um, it's it's kind of gone in the same direction. That he's kind of laid back with his decisions. I'd imagine after he's won in Qatar, if it wasn't even done before Qatar, ever since Luke has been known to be going to Honda I think DG has been probably I think the win massively swings in his favour and I think up until then they're probably going hmm and I think as well the fact of the matter is that Aldegir back to the Moto2 man he was everyone's thinking he's probably going to get that seat until they find out that his contract has a baked in clause that if a MotoGP team come in for you, it's a 1 million euro there they're about fee to break the contract. And essentially, if you go and get Digia, who's no contract, quarter of a million you're probably paying for him. And imagine if you if you do buy out uh, for me and Alligator, you're probably going to be looking at a, at least 150 to 200,000 in fee there. So you're, you're giving up a million just to get a, another rider. And to be fair, you're getting an unknown kind of prospect, a very young rider uh, as well in for me. And so you're getting a, a proven race winner uh, Digi now has won in all classes, so he's he's won across everything he's ridden in a way. So he's proved he can adapt. And he's proved that with the right setting, the bike works fine from. And he was so good again today. If it wasn't for the super track that is Vincent, he wins that race so easily because he had so much speed. So he was so good all weekend. I was watching him all weekend, just watching him on Friday and just the red helmets coming up on screen, thinking, "Geez, he's had such a good end to the season." And he's there's just the kind of whole media thing going on of. Well, I have a set of letters here and a helmet. Like, I might be testing somebody on Tuesday, but like, if it doesn't end up being did yet, Jesus, it will be some curveball out of left field. Like, and uh, Vietti isn't ready. Um, they're not, in my eyes, they're not going to pay the million and million and a quarter, we'll say, with a contract for, for me and Elgar. I don't think that's that's worth it. Like, that's, that's huge money for um, a, a rookie and someone so young as well. So, I think that it's. 90%. I, I'd imagine right now it's signed, sealed, delivered, everything. It's just we haven't got the press announcement. So I'd imagine um, first thing tomorrow morning, we'll probably see pictures of Valentino or Uccio shaking hands with DGA, VR46 signs, Fabio Di Antonio, and 
2024 is set I'd say in that sense because like we still won't, like the season's done we know Luke is leaving VR46 but we haven't heard anything anywhere where he's going in terms of an official announcement but like he's been banging on how he's getting a factory seat and he wants to build a bike so we obviously know it's going to be the factory HRC seat at Repsol so um, yeah it's nailed on he's been brilliant his race today was so good it was I was, I was actually quite sad when I saw that he got a penalty because when he came into the for him he said it's one of his worst podiums ever because um, Pecker just basically defended everywhere he could on the last lap and he said oh, I, I couldn't pass him even though I was quicker and uh, he said he's like he came out like half a short lap he was shaking his head because he kind of knew himself yeah. was done and he came out last corner the head in the tank and he's uh, he's quite emotional in a way but he's a uh, it's a good character and I'd actually as the season's gone on I've wanted him to stay a bit more and I'm really happy that he's he's found this form and I'm happy that he's realistically going to be riding on a Pertamina VR46 Ducati next year. It's a good job he didn't win, isn't it, actually? <laughs> Imagine if he'd won and then yeah. he gets to... to I, I did think that when you were making the point, yeah, that that would be a kick in the teeth, right, if you had yeah. won and you lose it. Yeah, because not even, like, you've won and then, like, you've dropped a second. He would have dropped off the podium still because the, 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 the yeah. difference would have probably still been enough to drop to fourth. So, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, that's a good job he didn't win, I guess, but a shame for him that uh, he got the tyre penalty. I mean, it's one of those things, obviously, with the tyre pressures. And whilst we're talking about the tyre pressures, the last point we have down here is sort of just the problems that MotoGP has at the minute, obviously. We've had, we're at the end of the season now, it's time to sort of have a little look at how this season's played out. We said last year that the aero definitely was ruining the racing. I think this year it was a step better. I think it was a little bit better this year. And that's probably just down to the fact that the riders are more used to racing with the aero um, and racing each other. So I think the racing was a little bit better this year than last year in general. But even still, we had some snooze fests. We had some faster riders just not be able to make passes because of the aero. We've had the issues with the ride height devices. We had, um, we've had so many issues with the ride height devices not working. Obviously, we had Jack Miller... Uh, on Saturday, he didn't actually have a ride height device problem, but he had a problem with his electronics that didn't allow him to engage his ride height device. He dropped from what like P4 to P21 on the run to the first corner, which is obviously extremely dangerous with that kind of closing speed. Uh, you know, it, we've we've got problems with GP, obviously with the the, the, the stuff with the front tire, the, the pressures. Obviously, again, ties into Digi Antonio getting a penalty for it. It's it's in a bit of a mess. We've got some of these tracks we can't overtake. We have tracks where they're too dirty to overtake offline. We have tracks where you know the track surface is not used aside from MotoGP, so it's a disaster when you get there. There's some pretty big problems that MotoGP needs to solve. Stewarding as well. To be fair, we've not banged on about stewarding as much lately, but I think that's just because we've started ignoring it just because the decisions don't make any sense. I mean, I know the, the, the binder penalty was a bit... Um, controversial in a little bit uh, according to like sort of some people like it's a kind of a bit of an argument whether what kind of penalty it was I do think that a long lap is a bit harsh for that I don't think it was a long lap worthy offence because Alex Marcus didn't exit the track like he he did stay on the track so I think there is an element if you've kind of got to be like well is that a three second penalty probably not but you know it was very aggressive but then obviously should you be allowed to overtake somebody and then let them back through I guess that's not really serving a drop one position penalty. Um, I don't really have a problem with him doing it. If that's what you're allowed to do, then fair enough. But I do feel like maybe it should be a bit more robust than that. And I think it has varied over the years. I think I have seen instances where people have been told to drop two places once they've made a pass. But Do you remember what Pekka got in Jerez for the Miller incident? That was a drop that one was a lot position. Less. 
Okay, okay. That also should, just shouldn't have been a penalty, though. like Falao. Yeah, well, that shouldn't have been. Yeah. But yeah, but like that's kind of under the same bracket of passing right or and like he sat him up. There wasn't contact, but yeah. it was. It's kind he of sat in the him same. a little bit, like as well. Like thing yeah. is, like he sat somebody up a little bit in Hareth and got a drop one position penalty. Masia literally drove his rival to the like rode his rival to the white line twice and didn't get anything. Which you know, if sitting somebody up is a penalty. How is sitting them up and pushing them to the edge to try not a penalty? I just don't understand. But yeah, there's quite a few issues, isn't there, at the minute with, uh, with MotoGP? Yeah, um, tires, aero, ride out devices, tracks, too long of a calendar, um, stewarding. They're just some of the things that, as we went to the end of the season, was kind of. No warm up sessions. On. Yeah, bad, bad scheduling. Um, We've seen it multiple times throughout the season where maybe that's, you could maybe point out to the fact that we talked at the very, very start of this podcast over an hour and 53 minutes ago that the fact that there's more warm-up crashes, warm-up lap crashes, siding laps. Maybe it's because they're, they're not having the morning warm-up, their first laps out. Probably or it is, actually. Or maybe maybe it's a small uh, percentage adding up to that. Um, You've got to push more on that... the siding lap now to understand the bike. Whereas before you just yeah exactly on twenty minutes on it yeah and like I think we both agree to find twenty minutes ten minutes for model three ten minutes for model two is like it's it's there like that time is there um like the whole parade thing that they've kind of taken from F one and try the run with I've ne- I've 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 never been at an event since it's happened so maybe it's it's great but in terms of safety you have to have a morning warm up for the the other classes it's not right that they're you're finishing your lap like we've I've said this so many times, broken record in this sense where you crash in Q two, you ride your bike to the grid and you're racing, you don't know what you have underneath you really, and like you're just hoping that everything that's been caught by the mechanics that you've you don't have any stretch fractures or anything in the bike and it, it, you're just a, you're if I was a more three rider and I was going to the grid after absolutely end over end wrecking a bike at the end of Q two trying to get pole position you'd be a bit tense. Like, it's, it's already tense if you're going to the grid, you're you're racing in, in 15, 20 minutes, you're, you're trying to get everything right and make sure you're hydrated, make sure that you're you're loose, you're in the zone, you're ready. You don't need to be thinking, right, well, I hope the front forks are, are, are okay after me bending them to bits yesterday in that crash in turn four. And you, it's just another thing they don't need. 10 minutes, you'll kind of cover every box, you'll, you tick the boxes and stuff like that, and it's all they really need. Like, and of course, it'd be brilliant to get longer warm-up, but... 10 minutes either side, it would be probably 20 minutes of extra tag time between 10 minutes in the morning and maybe a 5-10 minute break and then 10 minutes again. It's easy. It's easy to find that in my eyes, like 25-30 minutes. It's um, it's it's not that hard in my eyes to find it for me. Um, I think where do we actually, they did have time for it elsewhere, where did GP get like was it um, Phillip Island, where did they get extra wet time to practice? Yeah, yeah like an extra I think it was Phillip Island. They did have a bit of time, didn't they? There was an extra weekend where they basically pulled 10 minutes out of out of thin air. And um, it, it's proven that like if they wanted, they could. 10 minutes. It was just the easy like, option. Just start 10 minutes earlier. Like It's not going to be that much difference. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like The track temperature is not going to be that much worse 10 minutes ago. <laughs> like, so yeah. said, just, do, just do it 10 minutes before MotoGP warm-up, because the fan stuff's after MotoGP warm-up anyway. Like, yeah. I just... It, it just seems a bit silly to me. I, I don't know. I, I I don't really know why why they do it. To be honest, yeah, it's it's not right. But at the same time, the tires we go kind of go back to the issue is GP um, tire pressures. Like Digi has lost the podium today. We 
for the last kind of six weeks we were coming down to the final round of the championship thinking I hope to God Peko doesn't lose the championship because of a tyre warning pressure. I hope Martin doesn't lose the championship because of a a pressure warning that ends up being a penalty because like from next year, like like I don't think people realise that. It's if you get a warning next year, it's a penalty. Yeah, so it's uh, it's you're being penalised immediately. So you have no leeway and it's going to be the same tyres. It's going to be the same. Aero's only going to get worse. Um, I don't really know what we're going to do when it comes to that because like there's no way Darren are going to leave 15 bikes be disqualified and we finish a race with nine riders who were either got a terrible start and had clear air and their tyres never went up or Pekka who led from the front. Is, is it going to be like Pekka, Rod Fernandez, Nakagami and rookie Pedro Acosta finished like the first round because everyone in the mid-pack tyres have gone through the roof and that's all them disqualified. Like It's not right. Um, in fact, they brought in the rule, told us this is going to happen from Hareth onwards and then they got to Hareth and they're like, well, it's not really. We can't really do it yet. Oh, it's Silverstone, and it's just messy. They don't really know what to do with it themselves. Um, I understand completely the reasoning behind the safety issue of the front tire being too low, and basically failing or having stretch factors, or whatever. That's fine. The right way to do it is to get the aero and the right height devices removed back a bit, so that the front tire has more load, uh, less load, and more more longevity and is less under so much load because so many times this year there's been crashes where you, you just look at it and go like it wasn't moving on entry like if you go back 10 years five years seven years you see a crash you see marcus oh you see it's sliding in he's really backing in you know he's in deep and it's just as he's getting to the very end just chatter just chatter he's chasing it just see these front break it goes now you watch the motor dp crash and it's like nothing and he's off it's just there's no the bikes are so glued to the ground that they're just clearly pushing so much off the edge of the tires gone that's it gone and like we go back to texas we had peco say i crashed because the bike was too good it, and it at the time he got slack but this is exactly what he means at the point that the fact is the bike is pulling the bike so down with all the air all these little cavity holes they have through the bike where the, the air has been pulled in i mean pulled down towards the ground when the bike's on on the edge of the tire but clearly there's going to be a limit between how much the track and tire can make to the point where the bike is going to go off the edge and you'll have these crashes where you've just been going through the corner exact same speed now maybe you're pushing a bit but it's it just feels like this year there's been so many crashes Jorge Martin in um, and Lake was another crash where it just was a weird crash and um, it's just it's a bit messy in that front I think it all ties back to the aero now because like Jorge Martin it's done one today what happens if the two of them absolutely clatter each other like that's 210 miles an hour when they break now it doesn't look it because it's so straight and it just for whatever reason it doesn't look it but because turn one is so fast they get all the way up as far as 210 miles an hour when they're breaking if he gets sucked in they're colliding at well over 100 miles an hour that is a helicopter crash if i've ever seen one um the, the racing is not special enough if you watch super bikes british super bikes or world pound for pound the racing's better week in week out there um, I know it's, it's hard with our prototypes to make them race perfectly but we had a very good kind of period of I suppose kind of 2010s and on up until kind of 2018, 2019 and when these front aero devices started coming in and especially when the um, the right height devices they have absolutely crippled racing because of what they do to the bikes on corner exit and what they do on corner entry of how they defend the rider basically so if you make a mistake on corner entry you can kind of get the right height device down and kind of cover yourself up. You mightn't get a, a perfectly good exit, but then you can still break deep enough where no one's out breaking you. And that's, 
you don't really want that. And I, I, uh, I listened to a podcast the other day with Ben Spees, and he's basically said that every track in the world, the passing zones have just gotten smaller, which means the, the, the fine line of going over the limit is so much smaller that riders like a Maverick Vinales can't make it, can't make a pass. Like, and you saw in Qatar, he had so much more speed than Jorge Martin, but he just could not. No matter what he tried, he couldn't get the move done. Eventually, Martin was going so much back that he eventually managed to just about level him and get through. But it was just, it's just there's so many issues at the moment with sport that it's it's not where it should be. And I think for years GP was the peak. But I think now at the moment, if you if someone asks me, oh, I'm trying to get into bike racing, what should I watch? World Superbikes hands down is pound for pound better. It's more enjoyable. Uh, I think the schedule probably works a bit better. Um, I think the whole allure and the, the aura of GP still pulls in and you're getting prototype the so-called best riders in the world the Grand Prix product all that and uh, that kind of drags in a bit but it's um, it's, it's I've kind of gone on long enough on the point to the point where there's there's just there's so many issues and they're kind of all multiplying each other because one results in the other and then that kind of makes the next one from there on it, it, it does quite a few issues from there really yeah, and unfortunately it seems like we're going to be stuck with these issues for a while. I do see yeah. them being addressed at the next time the rules are redone. I think um, I think that they, they are exactly. aware of it being a problem. Um, I mean, Michelin also are very equally to blame with the, the manufacturers because it's taken them a ridiculously long amount of time to develop this tyre. Um, it shouldn't be taking them this long, in my opinion. I mean, I'm not, I don't know anything about tyre development, but you know, in the past, especially when there was a tyre war, they were chucking new tyres every weekend. Like... There's surely, like, you have all of the data, how much load in there. You know, even if for a season you have to bring tyres that are just really hard, that, like, don't overheat too much, the riders will get used to riding them. Like, I just, I don't know exactly what the, you know, how how to fix it. But the, I think the tire, I think Michelin do have to take a certain level of stuff because this has been, to be honest, basically since the back end of 21, really, it's been an issue. Up until that point, it wasn't too bad. Um, obviously we did have it occasionally in 20 but that was because they were racing in really hot conditions some places obviously caused the tyre temperatures to go up but yeah, before all these ride devices and stuff came in um, like, and during that development freeze obviously there was a big step I think and that was part of the problem that Covid had the big development freeze so when they came back in like sort of 22 when it was all kind of over there was a big jump in, in technology so I think that was part of the problem but yeah, uh, I agree with you that World Superbike actual racing is definitely better. I mean, look at what Torak does on the brakes, for example. You can't do that on MotoGP. You, you could do that on MotoGP, what, like five years ago? You can't do that on MotoGP now. Yeah. And that, 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 that's what makes that's what makes overtakes. It's all about braking. That's the most important thing. Um, you know, no, no one thinks, oh, that, you know, when, when you blast past it, that Yamaha on the straight, that, that no one thinks, oh, that was a really good overtake. Or, like, you know, if you can, like, flow underneath someone in a corner, that's unbelievable. But again, the error makes the bikes turn all the same and all, all the weight and stuff. You can't do that either. So, yeah, um, just just takes away all the overtake and hopefully there can be a solution to it. But I, I really don't see how they are going to do it. But I think that pretty much brings us to the end of just this. One oh, no, so one more point. We end. Jorge Martin, 18 wins ago. Mark Marcus saw me and released the brake. So maybe I'm not too ah. wrong in saying that he did see him and let him run around. So There you go then. Um because if, if you do actually watch the onboard of Martin's bike when it's in the gravel, he gets up and starts kind of waving at Marcus, kind of like, what were you doing? Uh, at the time, I, I kind of felt like he just lost the championship. He kind of would 
you know, no matter who is at fault, yeah. you feel just angry at the whole situation. You kind of throw your arm at the other writer, but he's basically come out and said that. <laughs> Mark Marcus is having an awful evening because Bezeki has slated him. Guaranteed, there's been words from the VR forty six the kind of the whole that kind of that uh, side of the, the account as well. So it's going to be a rough couple of days for him because Martin's come out blaming him for his crash and probably for the the lack of championship. But I just wanted to kind of get that in there just since again, if that's breaking news always, right now, then yeah, fair enough. Like yeah, exactly yeah, to end off feel the, free. the season with yeah, it's, uh... with um. Martin already getting on Marx's bad side, Bezeki on Marx's bad side. It's going to be an interesting Ducati battle next year in, internally. It's funny how the the last hurrah weekend, Marcus on the Honda, so he admitted he was pushing hard to try and get a good result. He also has like two incidents uh, <laughs> yeah. that are pretty uh, controversial. I did think that Marcus did seem to lean on him a little bit, but it looked like maybe he just couldn't quite see him. And Martin was a touch wide as well, so maybe he thought he left him enough room, but didn't. I mean... I don't know. It's uh, it'd be interesting to see how that develops. Then I guess, uh, yeah. especially like you say, they're going to be stable mates next year, all of them, uh, in the Ducati fold, and they'll be going to some lovely PR events, some World Ducati Day and stuff together. So uh, <laughs> if it gets a bit spicy on track next year, it could be quite good. I hope it's a good season. I really hope it's a good season. And whilst we're talking about this, do you have any final thoughts about this season and you know your expectations going into next year? expectations I'm, I'm going to say no because there's so much changing with Marcus under Ducati that's a, such that's the biggest question mark we've seen in years so it's kind of an unknown I reckon Peko will be better next year I reckon it's, it's the second year of the sprint format I think that whole thing will change up um, the whole it, there's so much changing for next year it's going to be different to look back on this year it's been a, a Ducati dominated year the KTM have Hand, held a candle to them in some places not much um, I pretty have misfired for most part of the season Yamaha but nowhere Honda nowhere so um, it's just it's very heavily Ducati's championship at the moment and the fact that they've all had podiums I'm going to say Bastianini won Jorge Martin won Zarco won Pecco won Digi won they all won aside from won. Marini I think so it was really the other one out, yeah, I was kind of going through it there. So, and he's had pole positions on like, podiums, five yeah. podiums in the sprint. So he's had, by no means, has he had a bad season. He's still been brilliant this year too. Like, yeah. so it just shows how good that bike is. So the, the, the question for 24 is, in terms of you're not looking at the riders more than manufacturers, who can who can take a bit of, bit of daylight out of Ducati because they are head and shoulders above anyone and probably will stay until 27 until the changes and I suppose. Um, Again, this season, Peko's brilliant. I, I'm going to spin this back on you. Do you think Tech Tech Peko, not Teco, Peko has been a deserving champion, or do you think, like I look at Peko thinking like that, it's ended the way it probably should have. He should have won the title, barring the so-called dud tire he got in Catalonia, which kind of spiraled the back half of the season, kind of to be a bit rough, um, and him to be under a lot of pressure. I think he's held held his own pretty well, and. Uh, Kind of from the mistake in India, and he's been pretty good. And don't think he's crashed since, as if if I'm not mistaken. I think he's had such a good finish. I think he's definitely deserved it. Martin was couldn't touch him for the first half of the season up until obviously beat him in sax ring, and there was kind of the odd race where Martin looked good. But do you think Peko was the deserving champion in the end? Do you think he deserved it over his full year? Uh, yeah. I mean, you can't reset really that. Say he didn't deserve it because. Um, like you said, the first half of the season, he was unbelievable. Remember Austria, how much we were just saying he was unbelievable. Yeah. We said finally he's showing that like 
because I think we were fairly in agreement that you know he wasn't a Rossi Marquez level rider, and we were saying this is the kind of performance that a Rossi level Marquez level rider can pull out, you know, on on the days where they really have the package underneath them. And basically, after that point, it went downhill. So you know, maybe if anyone's Actually, dominating next year, we need to start talking about how great they are, and maybe it'll uh, turn things around. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he was so good in that first half of the season. Obviously, um, he had so many rounds where he struggled on Saturday and bounced back on a Sunday. He's, he picked up so many Grand Prix wins over the course of the season. I mean, you think about how good Martin was. He obviously managed to beat Martin. So yeah, he, of course, he's a deserved champion. But the only caveat I have is that he made it way more difficult than it needed to be and he made it a lot more difficult than it should have been in a uh, you know as the reigning world champion on the same bike the best bike in the factory team uh, obviously he's got himself in that position by being a fantastic rider and it's not like there aren't other people he has a teammate in the factory team that couldn't hold a candle to him he had martin who couldn't quite beat him on what is effectively the same equipment yeah uh, there's probably maybe a little bit of parity you know there's a little bit of a difference but I think he still made the championship harder for himself than he should have done. If he was against a Marquez Rossi level rider, he wouldn't have won the championship. So, uh, no, 100% deserved, but you can't forget all the crashes he had, needlessly. Argentina, Texas, you know, India, uh, I think there was like another couple in there as well. Le Mans as Le well, Mans. you could argue that was, he could have just backed out of that yeah. instead of being too aggressive. Yeah, so. It's not been a perfect season by any means for him, but of course he's deserving of it because, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who wins it really, unless, you know, it'd have to be in some very weird circumstance to say that they didn't deserve it, I think. So, yeah, he definitely is a deserved champion over the year. He was more of a rounded rider than Martin. He just, I think, I think he, I don't know, it's, it's difficult to say. He's obviously, yeah, he's deserved a champion to answer the question. I was try, trying to like come up with a way to like say, yeah, he's a more round package for Martin, and I was thinking that maybe he does feel the pressure a bit more, but clearly Martin felt the pressure, but then Martin isn't a MotoGP World Champion already. Uh, so, yeah, obviously, great season for Banyai, but certainly could have been better, and I think he'll have to take a deep look at himself going into next year, because... Marquez is playing that it down, but we all know that he's going to at least be fighting for wins, even if not for the championship. So you can't afford to allow him to fight for the championship, if that makes sense. Like, if he's there or thereabouts picking up the odd win, you know when he's on a good bike, he's not going to crash out of, like, fifth. Uh, he'll take fifth place or whatever, especially if he's trying to build some sort of campaign. So you can't chuck 25 points away when you're beating him. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be going to be tricky, I think, going into to next year. But, yeah, it's... Uh, a good point you make there to pass it back to say what are the predictions and of course that is the end of this season of the MotoGP Extra podcast I mean I think we're going to still do some postseason stuff we did last year you all seem to really enjoy yeah, it definitely. So, yeah we haven't talked about it specifically but I imagine we'll do a lot of the same kind of stuff like I'm sure we'll do a rider ratings podcast again another preseason roundup maybe something else as well um predictions stuff like that so yeah uh hopefully you all look forward to that one again like I was saying at the start of the podcast I can't believe it's only been two full seasons and we really appreciate all the support as well and if you are listening on spotify please do rate five stars or if you're watching on dill's youtube channel do give the the video a like it just helps us out helps more people find the podcast and more people that can enjoy it just like you guys we can get some more community involvement when we make the polls and things like that we're going to try and maybe do a bit more of that next season i think as well because again the reception to that has been pretty good but yeah i've been reese he's been dill and enjoy the rest of your day 
and we'll see you, I guess, whenever we do the next podcast.